As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Tonight's show is sponsored by Audible, who have more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Yes, and our Astonishing Legends listeners can actually get a free audiobook by visiting audible.com forward slash ALP. ALP? Astonishing Legends Podcast. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Also, just a quick reminder to our listeners that we have a free app available in the App Store for iOS and on Google Play for the Android. Just search for Astonishing Legends and you'll find it. Now, those of you that follow us on Twitter and Facebook will have recently seen a shot of me at what I said was an undisclosed location. And as we expected, you guys recognized it pretty much within minutes. Well, you know your history. It's Dealey Plaza, the site of JFK's assassination in 1963. And as you might expect, we have a well-defined perspective on this mother of all conspiracy stories, and we will be doing a show on it within a few episodes, so stay tuned. That's right, and the reason I was in Texas in the first place was to attend the largest podcasting conference in the world, Podcast Movement 2015. We're always trying to figure out how to make our show better for you, and one of the things people kept saying over and over across multiple seminars was keep your intros short. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. I'll break my staff, bury it certain fathoms in the earth, and deeper than did ever plummet sound, I'll drown my book. Prospero, from William Shakespeare's The Tempest. Join us tonight as we take a look at many of the theories that have motivated dozens of men to spend millions of dollars and even sacrifice their own lives over the past 220 years. So this Oak Island thing has been quite a run, and weirdly, we had some technical issues about 30 seconds after I posted a picture of you in the studio here from our recording session Wednesday. Yeah, we experienced some Oak Island gremlin activity ourselves. Yeah, we had a catastrophic equipment failure. <laughs> Immediately <laughs> upon starting the session. Yeah, yeah our, my computer died, essentially. The screen went black. Uh, upon further research, we found that it has a problem known as a GPU panic, which in turn made it me It's got panic. panic. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, this is nothing new to the Oak Island story for the entire 220-year history. There have always been problems from the Yonslow Company, steam pump bursting as soon as they got it, up to the Lagina brothers experiencing mechanical failures and whatnot. It's, it's a pretty common thing. They just now turn to each other and go, well, that's Oak Island. I got to be honest, it felt, uh, it felt a little strange considering how many times we could have potentially had issues. And also we had a very finite window to record in. So on that note, we were, we we're apologizing for a delayed posting on this particular show 
it was truly due to circumstances beyond our control. I had to go buy a brand new computer today and reinstall everything and get all the licenses going and all that kind of mess. Oh, and to add to all of that, the dongle, which is a hardware software key, excuse me, that plugs into a USB port, got washed last night. <laughs> <laughs> not on not on purpose. Either. <laughs> not on it purpose. It wasn't dirty. Yeah, I went through the washer and the dryer, but I did the old bag of rice trick, and it seems to be okay. Yeah. So. so we're not really sure when you're going to be hearing this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what day As it of is. right now. That's yeah. why we, I think, if we don't know right this second, but I'm pretty sure we're going to release a little announcement on Friday. In lieu of that, if you want to keep track of how we're doing or if anything's going to be delayed or when something's going to be posted, and we will almost never have delays because we're sticklers for that. But it's a good idea to follow us on Twitter because all of our updates are there. Just go to Twitter and search for Astonishing Legends, and that's a good place to stay on top of, oh, you know, I was looking for the show. Why isn't it there yet? Or why didn't the show notes get posted? All of those kinds of updates are going to be there. Yeah, and a quick side note, we'll be taking a one-week hiatus after this show to provide our respective neighbors with proof of life and make sure Scott's kid recognizes him. So we'll be back on August 28th. With a new show. Nice. Two days after my birthday. Oh, nice. Oh, that's good. <laughs> uh, also, I should warn everybody, my southern accent's going to be a little dialed up because I just came back from five days in Texas. And in addition to that, my in-laws from North Carolina have been staying with us. <laughs> <laughs> so y'all get ready. Yeah, he, yeah that's, that's what he actually sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, this is our second multi-part historically focused special, really. The first one being our two-parter on Amelia Earhart, which we did uh, pretty early on when we first got started. That show was a lot of fun, and I think Forrest and I both learned things in our research that were new to us. One of the great things about that series was that we both felt like when we got through looking at all the available evidence, we had strong opinions about what probably happened to Amelia. There were believable eyewitnesses, testimony, documentation. you know. But relative to Oak Island, that whole mystery is a modern one compared to it. Although many of those witnesses have recently died, they lived in our time, and we were lucky that researchers and filmmakers had archived interviews with them before that happened. Oak Island is a different kind of legend altogether. This story was already 142 years old when Amelia Earhart disappeared. And the current searchers on Oak Island, they're very much alive, but they're kind of in the minority. I mean, you do have Dan Blankenship and Fred Nolan, I believe, is still alive, but they're in their 90s. Yeah, the, the bulk of the people that have worked there have, have passed away or moved on to the, to the next life. <laughs> yeah, that's well, the thing is about this story, which makes it so captivating, these people spent the majority of their lives, like Frederick Blair, spent most of his life searching for the answer to this mystery. I know. And we, or more specifically, I had said earlier <laughs> that we were going to cover all of the theories of about Oak yeah, I wish, you'd, I wish you would stop saying things like that because yeah, there's so many of them. Yeah. Forrest got a little upset at that because he is a man of integrity and he felt covering <laughs> all of them was probably not possible. And frankly, he's right. It's, it's not because we're not capable. It's because they come in varying degrees of plausibility and importance. And so while I'm sure there's a few out there that we somehow didn't uncover, we want you to know that we omitted some of them on purpose just because they were really flimsy or thin. But we have so many, you're not going to believe that, frankly. But you there's just, a few we left out. You just <laughs> You can't get to them all. There's really endless theories, and you're never going to satisfy everybody. But what we realized in researching the show is at some point you just have to stop and you have to record. And there's one thing that I want everyone to keep in mind, ourselves included, is that no matter what your theory is or our theory is, it's just a theory. All right, so let's get going. Here's a quick overview of the structure we're going to follow so you can know what to expect. We're going to start with the theories that are easiest to explain and that we felt could be shared in a shorter amount of time. Yeah, and then we're going to work our way up to the more complex ones and their ramifications. That's right. And along the way, we're going to try to tie in the evidence that we've mentioned in prior episodes and how that evidence may or may not relate to each theory as a plausible physical component of one of them or through its relationship in time that has been verified through carbon-14 dating 
which, while not perfect, is some of the best evidence we have. So with everything, you have to consider the mitigating factors. For example, the coconut fiber that was found in the, in the ocean can throw off C14 dating by a few hundred years just because it's been sitting in the ocean for a long time. So no matter what, if you're an expert on a particular theory or have a favorite, you're probably going to say, oh, why didn't they mention this or that? It's because it's our job to call this down as much as possible. So the truth is each theory could be its own show. So we have to abbreviate in the interest of covering everything the way we like to do it. These are the Cliff's notes. So when this show is done, you're going to be able to say, "Yeah, I'm going to have to listen to it again." <laughs> That's what you'll have to say. <laughs> and we apologize to anybody if we don't get to your favorite theory. So starting with some of the simpler ones, and one of the very first ones that's it's kind of big but still simple and easy to understand is that the whole thing is a hoax or a misunderstanding. <laughs> well, I'm not going to say hoax, but but maybe a misinterpretation of what's there, right? Well, you know, or, or do or do people think that somebody created this elaborate thing as a joke? Well, there's some people that think that. There's other people who think it's a sinkhole. That it's a naturally occurring event. There's, you know, it, it, skeptics, which we have often counted ourselves as leaning towards, have posited that the original three young boys, hearing tales of piracy and treasure lore all around the area found exactly what they wanted to find when they went out to the island. You know, they were looking for a treasure, so a sinkhole became a treasure pit because of the imagination of these young kids. By the way, it has been pointed out to me by one of our listeners in Texas who turned me on to a uh, closed Facebook group for dedicated to Oak Island. It's pretty amazing. She pointed out to me that it's since been determined that Daniel McInnes was, in fact, around 40, according to documentation that shows how old he was in 1795 and records f for him later in life. So we can't even say that it was three young boys, which it may have been a 40-year-old and a couple of younger guys. I, I don't know. Things <laughs> well, get complicated. Yes, barring all that, I would say then that, as we said from the beginning, some of these dates and actual facts are going to vary depending on the source. But if you listen to the cumulative descriptions of what people have found, then it does make it seem that there's just more to it than, well, nobody found anything. Right. And that was right. a big thing with me, Scott, is that you can debunk any part of this and say, like, well, there's no proof. All that stuff, the little bits that they found, those were put there by people who wanted to further the dig and get more financing and get rich off this whole thing. I can tell you right now, nobody got rich off of anything. In yeah. fact, they, they wasted their, their life savings on this thing because they believed in it so much. Yeah, we're estimating based on our research that there's been, you know, 25 or 30 million spent, which already exceeds over 50% of what many people think the actual <laughs> cash value of a treasure would be that's yeah. down there. Yeah. You know, obviously religious relics notwithstanding or, you know, important knowledge notwithstanding. Yeah. But it's, you know, it's crazy. There are some folks that say it's a sinkhole, plain and simple, and that the men who excavate it have misunderstood natural phenomena to be evidence of man-made activity. You know, the sinkhole swallowed trees, and that's what the log platforms were, and many of the substances found occur naturally, and that the flood tunnels are naturally occurring as well. By the way, the mainland in Nova Scotia is covered with sinkholes. They're everywhere. Uh, we have a link on our website and in the show notes with this episode where you can go read about that. But, you know, if, if it's just a sinkhole, you have to discount multiple reports of well-constructed wooden platforms, right? Yeah. And the, and the pick marks in the side of the shaft. Yeah, which, of course, else. people debate that. There were no pick marks or that uh, it, it couldn't have happened that way. But the overriding thing, I will say for me anyway, is that with sinkholes and natural geological phenomena that happens, there's more entropy with it, meaning that it's nature is chaotic. It doesn't lay down oak logs side by side 
evenly. That's right. And, and you know, there's debate. Which like, is how well, it's been described by yeah, numerous and, groups. And this yeah. is the one thing I wanted to also point out, is that, yes, you can discount the testimony of all these people, but I'm going to go with that people knew what they were looking at. Maybe they didn't understand all the scientific implications, but they knew when there was something orderly that they were looking at. You know what I'm saying? Like, logs were lined up. It wasn't just logs sticking every which way, like pickup sticks. Right. They kind of knew what they were looking at. And the pick marks in the wall, there's a lot of clay in that dirt. And if you look on the show, The Curse of Oak Island, when they have an excavator go down, you can see the excavator marks making smooth indentations in the dirt in the sides of the uh, of the wall where they're digging. Right. So right. I can see pick marks happening. Yes, I agree. And the other thing is that when, when trees go down into sinkholes, I don't think that they necessarily form the appearance of perfect logs. They're not going to necessarily be stripped of every branch like a toothpick. Yeah, it, well, that's what I'm saying is that there was too much order for these people to to count it as – I mean, look, they understood their surroundings. They lived there, grew up there. They knew uh, – well, look, anywhere you go, if you see a landslide, it's not orderly. Things are mixed up in it. It also doesn't account for the coconut fibers. Right. If you, if you look at, like, the coconut fibers found in Smith's Cove, for example, you know, it was a common shipping material. I've read that if a ship needed repairs or ran aground and had to be righted, they would offload all of the cargo and maybe dig a trench next to it, hoping to get it upright again and set it free. Now, in the offloading of the cargo, they would be offloading the coconut fiber as well and might not return it to the ship or all of it to the ship or if it's going on to another vessel, if the ship can't be saved. I mean, all that seems to stretch to me, but it's it's proposed that the 145-foot trench of fibers was that. It was dug to ride a ship, keeping in mind that there was three and a half tons of fibers in that trench. I don't know. I For me, the hoax misunderstanding... Thing based on all the research we've done, I have a hard time believing that it's just a hoax or or a decoy, which some people think it's a decoy. I mean, well, I mean, I mean, I'm open to the decoy. Yeah. I know that you like the decoy. Well, no, no, no. Let me explain myself. Yeah. Is that it's not the whole thing's not a decoy. Is that if there is a pit like that, it was a distraction from the real treasure. Now, I think that's possible. You know, what right. I'm saying like spend all your time digging here, but it's really over here. Yeah. And people say, well, what's the point of that? And the point is, is that it lets the world know that something's there. And that seems more believable to me, is that it's a signal to the world. And now for two hundred, over 200 years, something is there. It's to get people with the right skills and knowledge to start looking for it. Right. But the people with the... Uh, just quickly, there's an airplane coming, and we just want to point out that normally we record at night, and it's very quiet, and you don't hear a lot of background noise. On this episode, you're probably going to hear planes and dogs and some other things because we were behind, and we wanted to get the show posted as soon as possible, so we apologize for environmental contamination. <laughs> well, as you may hear, being abruptly cut in the background to cover us up. Yeah. Uh, no, my point was that I think it's a likely scenario that it was meant to be found by the people with the right intentions, and the people with the wrong, not necessarily the wrong intentions, but without the knowledge and the, uh, the you know. Yes, I call this your Indiana Jones position. No, well, who knows? I'm not saying. No, Are you worthy? You know, grave robbers. Well, yeah. that's the thing. A Lara Croft or whatever who's just there for the money of it. You're actually referring to a video game character. No, and I wish now I hadn't brought any of that up. <laughs> go ahead and cut, cut all this. I'm not cutting uh, There's no way I'm cutting th- There's <laughs> My point being is that I believe that whatever's there was meant to be found by certain people and a waste of time for others, which right. it's turned out to be. Not that any of these people were, some of them were unworthy, because I think like Frederick Blair back in the old days had his heart in the right place. Yeah. Okay. I agree. Okay. So that's that's enough about the misunderstanding. We're going to move on now. We've got to keep this moving. Mm-hmm. The one, I don't know why I put this as number two, because it's actually 
the shortest one of all. Just to get it out of the way. Uh, aliens. <laughs> yeah, that's... <laughs> no, Where's George Suclis? Aliens. <laughs> yeah, like well, ancient, ancient peoples. There's, you know, there's been no evidence uh, uh, that aliens were involved. There's, there's no non-terrestrial materials involved. Yeah. There's no sightings of spaceships or even light. I mean, there's been spooky lights, <laughs> Ooh, but there's well, more that's... like paranormal things. Well, yeah. yeah. I, so I'm, you know, I'm just going to go ahead and say, if aliens are your favorite Oak Island theory, that's great. Good for you. I'm not on board with it. Well, it, look, if you, I think if you're on board with any of the alien stuff, you're going to have to consider the fact that aliens are advanced. And this thing doesn't show any super advancement. It shows some very clever engineering. Yes. Certainly, certainly marine engineering yeah. and mining uh, skills and technology, but of a of an older date. Yeah, you know, and it's, also it's a little crude for aliens. If you're I an think. alien and you're vis- you're already visiting from somewhere else, you can bend space and time. Why not just come back when the time is right for whatever thing that you have with you? Yeah, I don't. Uh, it would be a little. It'll, it'll be a little smoother execution. However. We'll, again, everything that we talk about tonight, I want you to keep it in mind, this could be a whole show on its own. Yeah. We're probably going to keep saying that. But the caves, the Kincaid Cave uh-huh. in the side of the Grand Canyon. Oh, well, yeah, story. that's a future show. But the, what guys, they found, I can't though, wait to do that show, by the way. The point, my point is, is what they found, that shows some, some nice finish to it. You know what I'm saying? Like right. smooth walls, painted. It's like a, tre- it's a real treasure room. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. there's other examples of that throughout history. Spoiler alert. Don't yeah. look it up, people. Wait for us to tell you about it. <laughs> well, go ahead. Do some research for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. in advance. Oh, that'd be nice. Yeah. But, that's, but that, anyway, that discounts, for me, the alien thing is that it's just not fancy enough, essentially. Right. Right. All right. So uh, next theory, and I think you have more to say on this than I do, but I knew that you had a position on it, was that it was some kind of mine. Well, I've heard people uh, say it was maybe a mining operation of some kind, because certainly they all the earmarks are there, uh, cribbing, yeah. uh, steel plates at some point, and, uh, and air shafts were used, and some other mining technologies the co- the uh, oh the charcoal that was found that as we mentioned previously was used to draw fresh air down there oh that's right because you would you would set it on fire and it would have a chimney and um yes the the, the, the oxygen would be needed by the fire to keep right. going it's going to pull fresh air down there right and the chimney takes the burnt the smoke and everything up now the things for but me the that, chimney that's limited to how tall you can make your chimney yes right way. right yeah. you're a long ways down but my uh, thinking is that I don't know if there's any really mineable ore down there, and what you know the, the minerals that are found there is not not something you really do mine. For. Not a lot of value for it. Not not so much value. There's no coal. There's no uh, rich iron ores where you can extract precious metals from. It doesn't make any sense to me. And also, there's only the one vertical shaft. Then they haven't found any other access points where you can easily bring up uh, your your gathered materials out of there. Yeah, you know I mean, like to be you, working in and out of a of a two hundred foot vertical. That's shaft vertical. That's so hard to get mine. stuff out of there. Yeah. yeah, and and really no room for men to be working. Yes. you know what I'm and, saying like yeah. And it, most miners, uh, most mining engineers do not design flood tunnels into their mine plans, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> if you or, believe the flood tunnels yes. exist, which I do, frankly, I mean, and we'll get to that later. Yeah. But, all right. So uh, this this we're moving on to our next theory now. No, and just uh, oh, just to yeah. finalize that. Yeah. Yes, geologists and mining experts have looked at the workings and right. have, not de- have not determined anything about uh, natural or, or man-made mining okay. operations. So. All right. Well, there you go. So what about the, the Micmacs? Uh, no. <laughs> Micmog. Micmog. Okay. Well, they're, they're, they do Native have a cue. American, yes, they do. Well, Native North America. Yeah, they're, they're the indigenous folks of the region. 
uh, specifically that area there. But there is a Q on the end of the name, and I know it's confusing, but uh, Jay Hutton Pulitzer, I was listening to a uh, a podcast that he does, and he says he's been criticized by the, the local folks there. For not uh, saying it right. Yeah, but it's I, I can understand. Because Did I he, just offend a bunch of people? I hope not, but it, <laughs> we Sorry, hope we don't offend anybody. Apologies. No, but it, I've heard it uh, generally pronounced Mi'kmaq. Mi'kmaq. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, yeah, that's the tr- anyway, that's the tribe that's that's right there in that spot. That's right. And they weren't the first residents of the area, but they were the resi- the earliest residents whose culture and society and possible technology would coincide with anything like this. The earlier ones being paleo era uh, residents from many thousands the Stone of Age folks yeah, you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Right, right. So the the Mi'kmaq, right? Did yeah, right? very good. Yeah. Are considered the earliest potential creators of this stuff, but they were nomadic. They they moved around based on the seasons of the year. They lived at the coast in the summer, and they lived inland in the winter, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Uh, welcome uh, to correct me if any of Mi'kmaq are listening, but yeah. Yeah. No, they, there's evidence that, you know, what they would do is that in the in the warmer months, because we said that they get very cold weather up there, kind of inhospitable. During the warmer months, they would be near the, the shoreline gathering, uh, you know, seafood and, and fishing and this and that. And then when it got really inclement, they would move inland for the shelter uh, from the weather. Right. The main thing about them is there's no evidence that they were building complex technical stuff like this. They were more do- making uh, pro- probably pretty amazing shelters and things that they could take down and put up and travel with or not travel or whatever. But yeah. they have no, there's no history of them doing complex engineering projects. Back no, that they're, time, they're right? really, you got to think about that, you know, indigenous peoples are really just more concerned with surviving. Yeah. You know, they yeah. don't have a lot of free time to be, be digging tunnels and putting in cribbing and all that. Right. Uh, and mixing crude concrete. But, and there's also really no evidence, I believe, of, of a direct, of a camp really on the island anywhere. That's that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's a good point. And so then we're going to get down to some of the... Oh, did you mention Atlanteans? That's another... <laughs> no, I didn't. Please. What should we say well, about the, the no, Atlanteans? Well, no, that ties in with the uh, extraterrestrial bend is that it's really not technologically advanced. However, Francis Bacon, who we're going to get to later, called the area the New Atlantis. Right. Or that was kind of... We're getting into his theories there, but uh, he saw it as possibly a new utopia. Oh, okay. But no, really nothing to do with a, the Atlantean... A tiny island with a hole in it? Well, Atlantis. Utopia? Yeah, okay. Atlantis. They're, right. uh, well, with the whole area. But what I'm, my point is, is that if you've read anything about Atlantis and maybe a little bit of Edgar Casey or some of the other theories, is that they had advanced technology. And it would look, it would look a little bit better than what they found there. So, and again, back to... Yes. All Put right. that with the UFO thing. Right. All right. So now let's get to some of these ones that have a little more meat on them. Uh, we're you know we've moved through our appetizers. We're getting to uh, here the first course, right? Scott's wedge salad with the caramelized bacon bits. Yeah, yeah. he knows me too well. Okay, uh, bacon. Mm. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so we're going to talk about whether or not this was sort of an elaborate mechanical device. Now, this one from a comedy standpoint, and I'm married to a comedy writer, so I, I'm always seeing the humor in things. And there's a certain amount of humor for me. And don't tell the Laginas or Mr. Blankenship this in the idea that they're excavating. A mechanical engineering project that has no treasure to be spoken of. It's just they're taking apart some elaborate system that somebody built in the past, which has archaeological value, but it's certainly not going to repay the investment. Yeah. It will in knowledge. <laughs> but in the past, we talked about the various remnants of original coffer dams and the new ones that were built by Ocon and Treasure Companies during recovery efforts. Now, coffer dams are built out into bodies of water to restrain the water in what would normally be an inundated area, right? So they have been built throughout history when a more elaborate dry dock system may not be feasible for whatever reason. 
Is it possible that the remnants of the cofferdams in Smith's Cove were simply built for ship repair? Maybe maybe so that ships could be careened in the bay? Let me explain careening if you don't if it's not something you're familiar with. When you careen your ship or your vessel, it's like when you ground it on purpose. You find a place to do it where the difference between high and low tide is such that you can leave it high and dry. You wait for the tide to go out, the ship lays down almost completely on its side on the ground, and you make needed repairs or simply remove barnacles to improve the ship's speed at sea or whatever you need to do. If you can't get to an area with suitable tides or you need to do way more work than you can accomplish in one or two tides, would you maybe build a cofferdam to buy extra time so that you could have it on dry land long enough to to do major work? Uh, to me, it doesn't seem like it. It, it seems like if you're going to careen your vessel, you're going to find a private place to do it, you know, because if you were going to careen in Smith's Cove, it faces south, technically, it's sort of towards the ocean relative to Mahone Bay. And it, it would be partially obscured from a long view at sea by two islands, uh, Refuse Island, I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, and, and Big Tancook Island. If someone were to approach the bay on a northwest course from the ocean, which is the most likely way to enter it if you weren't undertaking some other course for a strategic reason, then after coming in the bay just a mile or so past the visual obstacles of those first two islands, the south-facing Smith's Cove would be in plain sight. So if some giant ship was careened there on its side, you would see it. I mean, if you're going to be up to the business of careening, which is like being caught with your pants down during an area of high traffic, uh, you would most certainly look for a place more obscured. And there's there's 360 islands in the bay there. So why pick that one and why face the ocean? So, you know, and I don't understand either the trouble of building a cofferdam just to careen or do dry dock work when the general idea is to get it done quickly and get the hell out of Dodge. I mean, the, the, the other thing about careening is that if you're doing it, you're probably either a pirate or up to no good because if you're an officially sanctioned vessel of one kind or another, you can generally get to a better equipped place for repairs. And if you're in worse shape than that, you're either sinking anyway or you scuttle the ship, you burn it, you burn it to the waterline so it won't fall into enemy hands. So it, it just doesn't make sense to me. There are many better concealed locations to be doing that kind of work in Mahone Bay. And the other thing is the tide. The tide there is only one and a half meters. It's it's just not that much. There's nowhere near enough water coming in and out to careen a vessel. Even modern sailors working in an emergency situation, like if they're in a remote area and they've got a problem, they look for a 10 to 15 foot tide just to careen a 20 or 40 foot vessel. And we're talking about ships that are much, much bigger than that. So this idea in general was first put forth by a guy named George Bates, who was a land surveyor in Nova Scotia. Uh, you, you may remember Fred Nolan, also a land surveyor. These guys are tricky. Anyway, George said the whole system was an elaborate, collaborative dry docking system built by pirates to allow them to repetitively dry dock their pirate ships for repairs. Wait, but one of, the, one of the many problems with this theory is why would they attempt to careen in Mahone Bay or do dry dock work in Mahone Bay, the home of Oak Island, when less than 100 miles distant, just around the western side of Nova Scotia, the well-known Bay of Fundy has 30-foot tides daily. It's perfect for that kind of work. So why would they build some super elaborate mechanical structure with a cofferdam that would take hundreds of men weeks, if not months, of work when they could accomplish the same thing just 100 miles away in a single day with no construction? Yeah, there's better built ports that were around there. No, there's certainly no shortage of shipping activity Right. Uh, pirate or otherwise. Certainly a lot of pirate activity. But yeah, George Bates, uh, from my notes here, says the uh, the artificial beach was possibly lowered to accommodate the draft of incoming ships. And a hollow chamber below the island could have been used to, to drain the cove, Smith's Cove. Right. And then, you know, pumped it out again. Again, that's a lot. It's, yeah, that's a mechanical kind of thing, but it's a lot of work. And as it, you, you pointed out, and I've always thought about this, 
is that whatever's there has, has taken a lot of side work. I mean, the milling of lumber, you got to cut it down, limit, you have to plank it. That takes a lot of manpower. Right. In addition to the design and the planning of the whole thing, it's... Yeah, yeah. it's a lot of engineering expertise here. Right. Oh, and one thing that kind of ties back to the natural pit flooding idea is that, and there was a two-week study done conducted by the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in 1995. That's right. They commissioned it at the time. Yeah, that was the... It cost $100,000. Yeah, well, I'm getting getting the info here from Wikipedia. It was on the invitation of Boston-area businessman David Mugar, and they claim it's the only known scientific study that has been conducted on the site, and they ran dye tests in the borehole, and they concluded that the flooding was naturally caused by interaction between the island's freshwater lens and tidal pressures in the underlying geology. Okay. And it refutes the idea of artificially constructed flood tunnels. Now, my argument against that is that that's in 1995. You've already had 200 years of people... You yeah, know, Dunf- making, making Dunfield, a mess of the thing. Dunfield the <laughs> yeah. Destroyer came in there with huge cranes and yeah. Well, no, you know, he and and that and was one argument is that he excavated he stuff. saw no evidence of any kind of man-made flood tunnels, but he he's dug the whole thing up. So yeah. I'm saying that the geology has been changed enough by people working on that, trying to find it, that that may not be accurate when you're looking at it in 1995. It may have gone back to certain natural processes. Well, and, and, and we pointed this out in part three, Woods Hole, even though they didn't, they couldn't conclusively say that they found anything man-made, they did feel that something was up. They, they wanted to yeah. continue, and they actually put forth a plan to come back, and the budget was so high, yeah. they couldn't do it. That's, not, that's another thing that, that's been proposed again and again, that the government of Canada or a an institution of higher learning. Somebody take a look at this, you know, from yeah. an archaeological standpoint. I think the reason, though, is that they've not found anything concrete. Like, there's no cave paintings or uh, artifacts that are substantial enough that they can look to and say this warrants the cost, because it would certainly still be tremendous cost to go take a look at it. Right. And you had made another point to me outside the studio before about. If this thing is such a brilliant invention, right, for... If it was a contraption designed to lower the draft of ships coming in, you know, so that larger ships could approach the island or a small island, and it was an ingenious way of draining the water down, refilling it with pumps or windmills, as it's been suggested, how come you haven't seen this anywhere else in the world? Right. I've never heard of anything or come across anything where uh, any kind of contraption like this, other than locks... You know, sure. To get past uh, differences in, in uh, land height or a canal system, uh, something like that, which I, I, I'm guessing that's kind of similar to what they're talking about. You're right. r- raising and lowering the water level. Moving on from that one, we have we had another little one of the little side stories, kind of a fun little side story. Oh, that you you put up on Facebook a little <laughs> while back. <laughs> yes, I did. There was a there was a press release that came out on January 10th of 2015, where a member of the Nova Scotia legislature. Denise Peterson Refuse, uh, same name as that what, one. Is it really Refuse? I don't know. Re- <laughs> refuse? No, I'm, <laughs> I have. Oh yeah, I don't yeah. know. I, I Not can't making claim fun it. of the certainly I'm no. Well, it's also the name of one of the islands. I think that I said obscured the uh, view of Oak Island. Oh, okay. Uh, was All right. Refuse. Anyway, sorry to throw you off. Anyway, here. anyway, yeah. she, member of the legislature, January of this year, 2015, as we're recording this, she came out apparently and said, and I quote: "The Spear of Destiny and other historical." and religious artifacts have been found on Oak Island, end quote. That she was quoted as saying. She that. was quoted. That's oh, in quotes. There was okay. a press release released, and it, it goes on to indicate, yes, that the Spear of Destiny 
has been found there. We should tell our listeners what what is the Spear of Destiny? Oh boy, <laughs> it's the just cursorily. Uh, you know, no, <laughs> oh, I've wow. added a twist to it, so it's mine now. Yeah, uh, they looking at the. Um, documentation for it. There are lots of theories. Well, the main theory here is that it was the spear tip or the whole spear itself of a centurion named Longinus. Yes. And he used it to pierce the side of Jesus Christ while he was on the cross being crucified. That's right, to make sure he was de- in fact dead. Well, there's there's a, there's an interesting theory of of why that's done, and it sounds in one sense it's cruel, in one sense it's it's maybe pain relieving, is that when your arms are nailed above you for a long period of time or just hoisted above you, your lungs fill up with fluid and it becomes very difficult and laborious to breathe. And so one thing they did was to pierce your lung. That would release the fluid. It made you live a little bit longer uh, it, with less pain, but it also made you live longer, you know, while you're being crucified. So, you know, that's – I'm not sure why that, that your, was done. your goal in the crucifixion. What kind of crucifixion How long you want to – Yeah, you stretch that out. Do you want to be more comfortable for a longer period of time or do you want to be really uncomfortable and, and die quicker? So. Right. Uh, but any anyway, this is an important artifact. Yes, that, because, well, you know, there, there's lots of legend and lore about this that whoever holds the spear uh, will rule the world, and there's tons of uh, you know uh, document. Uh, there's tons of stories and and movies. What was that one with the Keanu Reeves? Oh, uh, Constantine. Yeah, that see? was. That, I actually really enjoyed that movie. Oh, there you go. It, it's been long sought after, and even the uh, the Nazis were uh, Hitler was said to have gone looking for it. A lot of churches claim to actually have it in their possession. Yeah, they so. have different versions, as well as the Grail, which may also be there. Right. Uh, there's lots of different versions of that. They all claim to have some piece of it or, you know, whatever. So that's kind of the basic story. There's Right. And there's one problem with this press release. It's a fake. And, uh, <laughs> in fact, uh, Denise Peterson Refuse, uh-huh. uh, Fine. <laughs> she, ha- she was contacted by uh, a gentleman who wrote an article that we found online where she, she said, and I quote, it is pretty ridiculous, she said, laughing over the telephone. This article goes on to say she suspects that her very real proposal to the House concerning protection of any possible Mi'kmaq artifacts that may unexpectedly be recovered from digs on Oak Island prompted the faux press release as it seemed to have greatly annoyed some as it seemed to have greatly annoyed some associated with the dig. So she's putting forth this legislation that's actually making it harder to dig on the island. Right. And somehow and the press release coincided with the premiere of season 2 of The Curse ah. of Oak Island. However, the production team uh, denied that they had anything to do with it. In fact, they were concerned. They believed that somebody had – it was factual information, accor- according to them. Yeah. So whoever put it up there, put it up there for – Messing uh, with them? Yeah. 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 So. <laughs> well, it, it's – look, I'm all for the preservation, certainly, of native artifacts and, uh, and any, anything archaeological uh, in nature. Uh, but nothing really – I've not come across yet in my research where they found anything that could be attributed to a uh, an indigenous culture. Right, on the yeah. island. Right. right. So far, yeah. I just want to quickly take a minute to remind our listeners that we are recording in the daytime in our studio due to <laughs> We're the in computer a pool problems house. we had. And <laughs> there's a pool pump. <laughs> there's a pool yeah. pump that runs in the daytime right next to my little guest yeah. house here. And it's I guess it's set in concrete that is shared with my house. And ah. you can if you hear something clicking in the background, that's what that is. Apologies. A low thump. And we, we're not even using the pool. Yeah. So we want to keep uh, – we're going to keep going. Yeah, because there's no pool at my house, unfortunately. All right. Moving on. We should cover another one of these, what I call little quickies. Yeah, well. (laughs) 
one theory that was around for a long time, and I guess still is, some people must still believe it, but I don't know why, because it's actually been proven to be impossible, is that the crown jewels, Marie Antoinette's crown jewels, ah, are well, buried on the island. Yeah, right? that was actually, uh, of the time, that was a one of the more likely scenarios thought of. I guess FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the president, thought that might be what was there. When he was pre-president. Yes, right. No, no, this, is be, this would be clerk. 1909, the old gold uh, wrecking and right. salvage company era. And, uh, and other folks uh, did as well, because, again, uh, what we're getting to here is that some of these are more likely and easier for folks to believe. However, Marie Antoinette's crown jewels are in France. They were returned to France. They have them. They're not missing. I think they have most of them, but some are possibly unaccounted for, you know, which also fuels speculation. And you know the story, right, Scott, that uh, during the French Revolution of 1789, as the revolutionaries were storming the Versailles, she has her lady-in-waiting or a maid secret the jewels and some other paintings and documents on her person or somehow and uh, makes a quick getaway. Right. They think she went to London possibly with the aid of some of the remaining French naval officers who are still loyal to the crown, goes to Oak Island, and they build this contraption to protect the jewels. But again, I'm going back to the, the idea that it's pretty elaborate diggings there. Right. Too many people, too long of a period of time, too much money to have spent on that for a few jewels secreted out in someone's pantaloons. Yeah. <laughs> Nice use of pantaloons. I wanted to get that in there at, at one of our episodes, sure. All right. So that brings me to another one of my favorite long shots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a, I, I like it, though. Yeah. It's called the Baghdad Battery Theory. This goes back to, uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of a Baghdad Battery, but uh, some archaeologists uncovered a strange little jar outside of Baghdad that is thought to be about 2,000 years old, some time ago. And this, I mean, right, so right there, by the way, we have a problem with the artifact timeline. I mean, nothing that has come up or been involved with any of the investigation has proven to be that old, right? Well, it's attributed to a, a paper which was authored by Wilhelm Koenig, and he was a professional painter and an assistant at the National Museum of Iraq in the 1930s. That was his conclusion, is that he thought That's it was some... That's the a battery. Yeah, that yeah. because of the, the appearance of what was found. It's a clay jar with an asphalt stopper, and in the middle of the... Bitumen. Yes, <laughs> and in the middle of the stopper is an iron rod, and then around the rod is there's a copper cylinder. If you fill something that's constructed this way with an acidic liquid like vinegar or lemon juice to act as an electrolyte solution, it actually creates a very small electrical current. Yeah, known as a galvanic cell. And you can get some current out of it. I right. think kids kids in, in science class will make a battery out of a lemon. Right, exactly. You it's know. that same kind of project. And, but, but that's why you don't drink the contents of your car's battery because it's acid. Yeah. yeah. But it's used to basically, I think it's a difference in charge between the... Uh, can I just ask you, who is going to drink the contents of their car battery? <laughs> it's happened. That would make you... Okay. <laughs> Well, anyway. no, you know what? It, you, know, you have to be careful in the old days because they would blow up on you. Oh, yeah. Uh, gases are released, and uh, a lot of times they, uh, you'd go looking under your hood when the car is overheating, and, and bam. That happened to my great-grandfather. Well, there you actually. go. See? Yeah. Really he, was, he got really lucky. He was happened to be wearing glasses, and okay. it protected yeah. his eyes. Nice. Yeah. Well, that's what you know. Koenig thought, though, that not that they were generating it, running Walkmans off of it or anything, that he thought it was used for electroplating gold 
uh, as silver objects. Well, I have more on that, actually. Oh, good. Let okay. me tell you about it. First of all, Mythbusters, one of my favorite shows in the world. Yeah, it's pretty good. Jamie and Adam built a bunch of these in 2005, they, and they built 10 of them, and they connected them all together. And in they, the, I'm sorry, in the old design? Like where they, yes. Uh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And they managed to get four volts out of them, all right? <laughs> maybe it'll power your iPhone. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So uh, the original theory was, like you said, that maybe it might have been used to electroplate jewelry, but that actually was later disproven as it, it wasn't really an effective way to do that. So in recent times, there's not a single living archaeologist right now who thinks the original artifact was a battery. Right. You can believe that. So they all now think it was something designed for long-term protection of important scrolls and documents. Yeah, I guess the idea is that the iron rod or the metal rod in the center, you'd wrap that around. And then the hammered copper sheet that went around that was kind of a protected. But there was no jar, right? right. I think in the original, um, the idea for that, for protecting documents, yeah, that was one unfound thing. But But getting back to the pit on Oak Island, Somebody thinks it's a giant one of those. Yeah, they they think that the recovered evidence points to it. I'm not sure where the 200-foot iron rod went. Uh, <laughs> well, or, it's broken up. They found wire Or the 200-foot yeah. copper cylinder. <laughs> you know what? I guess they're thinking if, you know, you hit some iron on a dig, you bring up trace elements of copper. Uh, you know, it's 2,000 years old, this idea, too. And we know from carbon dating on the wood that we're not in a 2,000-year-old period with most of the construction at the money pit. So... It feels like a long shot to me. Well, the question, Scott, is what would it be powering? Well, you know, I asked that same question. So I, you know, with some decidedly unscientific simple math and cursory research <laughs> based in no part on any formal education in electricity, I make the following comparison. Ah. I know you guys are fairly smart out there, so if I'm wrong, just hit us up and let me know and we'll make a correction. But if the Mythbusters built a replica of the original jar, which was five inches tall, and then put ten of them together to get four volts... Then making some very huge assumptions that the output is is simply additive by simple multiplication and guessing that the money the one in the money pit, if that's what it was, was about let's just say 120 22 feet, which makes no sense because all kinds of stuff was found below that. But for the sake of argument, also how the hell would you make a 122 foot iron rod? I, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> Let's say it worked to that depth, and you could use simple math to figure out its output by just multiplying the size of the Mythbusters project up to the size of the pit. And if you did that, it would output 1,171 volts. Really? Yeah, that's sure. that's actually the equivalent of most third rails on a electric trains. Ah, yeah. So back when the money pit was built, regardless of which theory you subscribe to, that would have been like 1.21 gigawatts right there. Powering the Oak Island transit system. Yeah, yeah. so maybe Doc was there and he couldn't get out. He couldn't <laughs> he get back needed to a way there. back. Yeah, so yeah. they built this thing. I don't know. Well, you know, there's other theories of, not to get off on too much of a tangent, but the pyramids, they think, may have been used to generate electricity because I believe, now I don't know if this is apocryphal or not, but lower underground hallways and tunnels have scorch marks on them okay. of a massive, some kind of energy output. And I think some of the walls are bowed out. Wow. The, the stone, and we're talking about, like, you know, 2,000 ton stone block. Right, so at some point they were emitting Something happened. some kind of yeah, force they, or energy. Yeah, you're, I, I'm sure your folks like uh, Mr. Sukalos, which yeah. we got to get him on the show. Aliens. <laughs> got to get him on. Uh, I think, you know, some of the ancient alien, actually it has nothing to do with aliens. It's just, right. <laughs> it's just ancient technology that uh, the walls... Some kind of massive explosion or energy transfer, some energy release happened, causing scorching. You know, there used to be a gold capstone on the pyramids. That's right. So some of that is not always there. And then I saw on one of those ancient ancient aliens uh, programs that there are hieroglyphics, what looks to be a light bulb. 
Oh. Because you, you got to figure there's no light down there when they're working. Once you enclose the, the, the parts of it yeah. around you, it's very dark down there. And using mirrors to get light to bounce back in there doesn't really work. Anyway, so there you go. Astonishing legends. Making pseudoscience cool. <laughs> <laughs> we're, not a, we're, you know, we're not backing up anything. I'm just yeah. mentioning it. Yeah, just yeah. throwing it out there. All right. Here's another one. The ship that went down a hole. Ah, That's what I call yes. this theory. So there's this gentleman named Sukwant Singh, who at the time of posting several videos on YouTube was a resident of Tulsa, Oklahoma. Not sure he still lives there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we provided links to the original longer video that he posted, which is an hour and 27 minutes, and then also an abbreviated one that's eight minutes. Now, Mr. Singh is a well-educated man who's taken a very measured approach to his theory. But that being said, if Force and I have learned anything, it's that somebody who says something similar to, I have solved the mystery of Oak (laughs) Island once and for all, is already operating from what might be an easily identified position of confirmation bias. I mean, when you you don't – I don't think in the case of Oak Island anyone can say, I've solved it. It's like – unless they walk up to me and hand me the grail (laughs) or, you know, the ark or whatever. So. You have a theory, as we said in the beginning, and we're not we're not you know debasing one theory over another, right? But it's still a theory, exactly. And and we're all for taking a measured approach to what's going on there and applying scientific method to the deductions based on whatever ev- evidence is available. But one thing we have seen time and again with nearly everyone who thinks they've got it figured out is that once you set your mind to thinking that you're right, it becomes easier and easier to make evidence fit your theory. So th- that's confirmation bias, which we talked about in the Amelia Earhart show. Yeah, it's, a, it's an investment in time. You sp- yeah, he, he built little models and yeah. did a presentation. And, yeah. yeah I mean, if you've you know, got an hour-long presentation, right. uh, you've spent a lot of time researching it and developing your line of thought. Yeah, confirmation bias is rampant in any mystery that has been examined by several parties. And, and sometimes it seems to me like the more educated or experience that people are, the stronger they feel about whatever their position is. Now, I'm not saying that Mr. Singh falls into this category. I'm just saying that at Astonishing Legends, we're always wary of someone saying mystery solved, you know, especially especially when it so obviously would not be considered solved by anyone other than the person saying it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but on the other hand, some mysteries do get solved. And if somebody solves one, then of course they're going to say that. And they should, we suppose. But it, at some point you can call something. Anyway, I'm rambling. Yeah. Well, I, well okay. So what does, he, what does he think yes. is there? All right. There. So Mr. Singh posits the theory that the money pit is in fact the remnant of a 1,000-year-old Viking ship that somehow became stranded on shore and was sucked into a sinkhole at a nearly vertical position. And in this process, it was dismantled and partially disassembled so that the recoverable portions of the, of the ship could be properly buried because Vikings would bury their ships. Their ships were mm-hmm. very important to them. Yeah, they found one uh, that was uh, un- under a swamp or uh... – right. Yeah, and so – and the buried portions were often put underwater, under rocks, and he suggested that the structures that make up the finger drains in Smith's Cove are actually designed to cover ropes and, and um, rigging that would have been there to handle the 1,000-square-foot sail on this vessel, which they would have removed after it got trapped. So <clears throat> I don't know. So <laughs> – Well, there's one – okay, there's one element you might, you might be getting to, yeah. uh, which – which to me is um, not far-fetched, I would say, but I have a hard time picturing it, is the explanation of all the coconut fiber, 
which he explains as well. That's that would be the cushioning for the padding, you know, for the seats and the pillows. Yeah, that they, I don't think they were that into comfort. Yeah, I think if, the you were, if you were, yeah, if you were a Viking and you're on the rowing team there, yeah. uh, your your butt's comfort is not their first concern. Yeah, that's a good point. But that was his that was his thinking. He's like, well, that's what all the the, the matting is that you're that they're finding. Right, but in in Force and I do believe, for the record, that Vikings did visit North America. There, you know, there's been a lot of research on this. As oh yeah, of, as of late. In fact. Uh, Scott Walter has a, a book about it called The Hooked X, Key to the Secret History of North America, where he talks about Viking presence in North America. So uh, along those lines, it's like, okay, yeah, is it possible Vikings came to that island a long time ago? I'm going to go with yes. Oh, sure. However, Mr. Singh's theory has a few holes for me. Like the largest one is is something that you've already mentioned on tonight's show, and I agree with you about, is how entropy works in nature. Sinkholes have a tendency to crater out and become larger and larger. And sinkholes never swallow anything perfectly vertically, especially something that is 120 feet long or longer. How would it turn up perfectly, <laughs> perfectly vertically, vertically on an, on its yeah. end? It would be more like the, it would crater out into a much larger situation. I just it just doesn't fit. I don't even know how you could make that happen. So I mean, the the Money Pit's original depression was only about 13 feet in diameter, according to history. So. How on earth would it had ever have swallowed something that big vertically without you lifting up the stern or something like that? Yeah, you know? and you know what? I again, I'm still going to go with the original diggers or the Onslow Company, the first folks that are on the scene, noticing that these things are uniform, right? And that they're seeing enough signs of man-made activity, pick marks in the in the clay walls, all that kind of stuff. That they're look, th- these aren't dumb people. These were civic leaders. Doctors, lawyers, uh, you know, military people—they're not dummies. They know what they're looking at, right? Yeah. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with that. Yeah. So I, with all due respect to Mr. Singh, for me, his theory has a good deal of holes in it. None of which, unfortunately, are sinkholes. No, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's there again. The, the cave-in pit that may not be natural because that supposedly was over one of the air shafts that I right. think for the flood tunnels. But it gets into the area of Vikings because you, you kind of broach this uh, subject here. There was a settlement at Los Amedos on the northern tip of Newfoundland that was unearthed in 1961. And also, another show that we could possibly do at some point is the Kensington Runestone. Yes. Found in Minnesota? Yes. That's another yeah. that Scott Walter special it, right, right there. Yeah. The and, Texas talks a lot. Of, he studied the Runestone for years and years. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they think, you know, of course, people think that's faked. Uh, it's a hoax. And I guess what they think it could be is just a, it's a land title. Right. Etched in stone that's buried. But it, but it shows that Vikings were there in America, you know, the northern part of America's heartland uh, a long time ago. And that ties in with Viking coins that have been found. Uh, a guy, a uh, farmer, I think, found some Viking coins in a tree. Right. That had grown up around it. Yeah. And, and also another thing that I, I noticed, the drilled rocks that they have found on the island are an old system of surveying where, you know, it's like uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You put the staff in there, you use them as sight lines. Right, right. So, you know. I love how when you go to a new unexplored world, you, you take your money with you, like where to a place <laughs> where it means absolutely nothing yeah, to anybody. You're like, <laughs> you don't know what you're going to find. You might want some snacks. Yeah. But, you, but they fall out of your pocket. That's another thing about yeah. treasure hunting. Yeah. Coins are always dropped. Right. And uh, the Lagina team, they found some interesting coins. It happened well. when I sat down here in the <laughs> studio Just now, today. Yeah. which somebody a thousand years from now will debate. Uh, well, whether I'll clean before then. Okay. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's talk about the Acadians a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Is this too deep for right now? Do you, wait, you know what? We'll save the Acadians, right? Well, the you Acadians... Wanna, do you want to talk about Poussin? 
with that or yeah that can get into um that's another yeah let's come back to that all right so here's another here's another one of the simpler theories the communal pirate bank all right. Now, Are you going to start talking about pirates now? Well, this one's kind of fun. I, I won't get too far to it now. We'll come back to, okay. the, to the big pirates, but this one is kind of fun. Imagine this. A large group of pirates have more booty than Fort Lauderdale at spring break, and they need a place to hide it all, right? So they, they all together, in a cute, funny way, kind of like that animated flick, Pirates, which I love, <laughs> they decide they're going to build an elaborate communal bank with complex security measures where they can deposit and remove booty as needed willy-nilly. This one, again, is only a theory, and for those of you who've listened to the Amelia Earhart series, we were told by one of our advisors, Dr. Tim, that the term theory may be used interchangeably with hypothesis if you are not specifically referring to a scientific analysis of something. And theory is easier to say. Yes, exactly. So we're going to get tired of saying hypothesis over and over. (laughs) Anyway, I probably botched that explanation, but the long and short of it is we are not scientists by any stretch, so we get to say theory. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of other, uh, uh, you know indulgences. Yeah, exactly. So, but there's no evidence to support a communal pirate bank anywhere. And frankly, I can't think of a group of people less likely to take on partners. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's something a, of that magnitude. Of it's course. Like, how would they trust each other? Uh, and I'm going to speak on that later here. But uh, the, the 17th century stronghold of Port Royal off the coast of Jamaica, uh, some pirate theorists think that that may have been a communal bank, but more likely an example of pirate ingenuity and their cooperation. Now, they did cooperate some, uh, as we'll get to a little bit later here. They yeah, did cooperate. They had, a, they had a town. There was a city. That was like a – there was structure to their – everybody was watching everybody. Yeah. It's it, not like a thing you leave behind. No, but you make a huge point there that I've – since I first heard about the pirate theory, is like, yeah, you don't trust other pirates. Right. Because <laughs> they're stealing – they are stealing from each other. And there's, these are not good people. No. No, and there some of them are particularly bad. No, and we'll get to uh, Henry Avery, who is was particularly nasty. Yes. But the thing is, Port Royal was uh, destroyed in an earthquake in 1692, right? And there was no evidence, I believe, found that there was any kind of bank at all, communal no, we, or otherwise. The, the only case where something like this comes up, and this is pretty interesting, is that there was an underground vault complete with flood tunnels built by a group of Huguenots in Haiti just for the purpose of protecting their wealth from being taxed or stolen. The Huguenots were Protestant French settlers, all right? So, and the, the Acadians were Catholics. We're going to come back to them in a minute. But Darcy O'Connor makes reference to them in his book, The Secret Treasure of Oak Island. But he also makes the very valid point that any hypothesis or theory relating to things that would have taken place in the mid-1700s, which is when we're talking about here, would not jibe with the carbon-14 dating of the wood brought up from the pit, which is at least 100 years older than that. So, yeah. Oh, you know, I want to make a, a quick point here about carbon dating. It only works with organic materials. Right. Uh, there's other m- methods of dating uh, non-organic materials, but uh, we're talking about dating the wood found, the coconut fiber, things like exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. And, and then the last point that O'Connor makes there is that such a large-scale project would have been nearly impossible to carry out during this time since the area was well populated, so you would have to be killing witnesses like every few days, <laughs> <laughs> which tends to be a short-term solution yeah. for super-secret engineering projects. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're right. That for me, that cancels out a lot of these other theories. In that, this project wasn't just a couple of weekends, you know, here and there over the summer. This took many months, maybe a year, maybe two years, right. with a large group of people, not very secret. And if you're a pirate crew uh, or even a military expedition. You want secrecy, and by and and by the dating of this time, there were already settlers in and around there, right? Who who may have seen your ships come in, and they're of course wonder why you're there. Exactly. Well, all right. So here's another fun one that I really I, this one I really enjoy. I'm having a hard time buying it, 
Uh, it feels very trolly. Uh, if mm. you guys know what trolls are on the internet who like to trick people, but uh, there's a there's a gentleman named Andrew Goff who is not a troll, by the way. He's a legitimate researcher who was contacted by an informant in 2006 who called himself Will. And Will said that he had dove on the area around Oak Island several times on behalf of a secret organization funded by a Spanish millionaire. Ooh, All right. Already interesting. So Will actually wrote a few letters in to Mr. Goff and also to threaders on, I guess, Mr. Goff's site or another site regarding Oak Island. Here's, here's one of them that you should, you should hear. My name is Will. You wouldn't have seen anyone digging or excavating on Oak Isle, or any isle for that matter. We were 300 yards from the shores using a submersible to tweak the tubing system that harbored a tar capsule that has moved back and forth between islands since at least 200 A.D. This is the first and last time I will mention how our efforts truly went about near those islands. This is the first and last time I will mention how our efforts truly went about near those islands, because otherwise I'll be sued into the Stone Age by a very powerful group of individuals that some compare to the supposedly non-existent Illuminata. The capsule settled in the lowest part of this thatch and tar tubing system, and we retrieved the items of interest. Basic physics. The key was not digging on any islands, which caused a reverse vacuum of sorts for this sliding capsule. Is there any traditional treasure on the island? Most likely. Not in the manner of the pharaohs who died with all their treasures, but definitely some very very valuable things. Good day, Will. P.S. The Spanish shoe was a decoy to throw off the hunt in 1755 or so. The engraved rock was not. The pentagram map has validity to it, but I don't know its relevancy in relation to other treasure. And then he says... He goes on to say, There is something on Birch Isle that could retire most men, but I'm not sure exactly what it is. But I am 100% positive it exists. The staff of King David are some sort of scepter, he says with a question mark. There were no plans to return to search for it. The capsule was found, and that was the only goal. So getting to the point, what he's saying is that, is that there's an elaborate mechanism, and there's this capsule, which to me sounds a lot like the thing they shot Spock out of the Enterprise in. <laughs> and inside, yeah. the, and it's covered with tar. You know who he said is in there? Not Spock. King David. Oh. No less than King David. Well, he, the father of King Solomon, who slew Goliath with a sling. I think roughly he's kind of dated to have lived around uh, 1040 to 970 BC or before current era. And there you go. But like, yes, a big, uh, a big deal. According to this guy, Will, they actually recovered something from the capsule that was more important than King David's body, and it was something relating relating to one, one of King David's favorite wives, Bathsheba. And they took it to Panama. Or something. Like, there's this whole elaborate story going on, and we're, we're not going to cover the whole thing here, just because we think you probably are better off just going to the link which we have on the website. It's it's a truly fascinating story. The, the last thing that I will read is uh, one of the last letters that Will sent to Mr. Goff. My name is Will de Leon Dubois. I am the adopted son of a recognized London-based scientist and a quite yet brilliant forensic archaeologist whom has been well-funded by a petroleum tycoon for the past 12 years to find a particular religious, possibly fabled item. Dubois is my real father's name, whom I recently reached out to four years ago and in honor took his name. Everyone on this site acts and appears to be an expert on Oak Isle. Even the property owners of the X-10 site... And surrounding areas act like they know something about what is buried beneath their heels. Yet not a single shred of evidence of anything substantial has ever been found, minus a few pathetic artifacts that any donation store or standard flea market could provide. 
I can say that you are all right and all wrong. This is why. Instead of putting your unquestionably formidable minds to use to discover the truths about one of the world's greatest mysteries, you slander and quibble over who is right and who is wrong, who said what or how. Try concentrating on your constants, your variables, then see what remains. Right. Many of your theories are eerily accurate, but others have lambasted your ideas, which decimated the correct path that took years to theorize. Are you people afraid of knowing the truth, the real truth? Are you just afraid your theory is not right? What is it? Ask yourself who benefits the most via tours, books, websites, etc., and there is your problem. I can't say much about our previous operation until two months from now, when pictures will be available and more info will be provided directly to me so I don't get it wrong. Heaven forbid I'd never hear the end of it, would I? So he's obviously been slighted by this message board. He thinks everybody's – it's too much infighting, <laughs> which, by the way, yeah. you know, and this may all be fictional and he may just be a troll. However, I can say from all the forums that we have been on in the course of the research for our show, including the Amelia Earhart ones, people get nasty. People oh, get upset. Everywhere. Yeah, everyone is arguing. There's all kinds of infighting. Because it's anonymous. You don't have to do it in front of people. Well, not even even some are using their real names. People are just like, this. my theory is right. You're an idiot. That kind of stuff. There's a lot of that going on, which we, we want to steer. No, no. We Again, we are not to get in to say which one is the real theory, and we know what's down there. We're just saying which ones make sense to us, which ones make a little less sense. Yeah, exactly. So, I don't know. This, this letter goes on to say more stuff. But, but that was him. Wanna, that like, was... Uh, I'm sorry, that was him, his retort to the letter in a little bit of a snarky tone there. Yeah, and it, it, it <laughs> continues, and it, it, the long and short of it is he said there was this elaborate system, there was the capsule, and the system was designed to move the capsule around tidally so it would be nearly impossible to find. Yeah. And sealed inside the capsule was King David and some artifacts relating to Bathsheba that were important to finding yet something else. So it was like a, a key in a puzzle, and that this group that he was working for did recover that stuff, and then they went on to Panama for the next phase of the operation. And I guess there hasn't been any more information from him since right. then. Well, that's a huge line of theory, though, is that it is something religious, and we're talking big. I mean, you know, King David, the second king of the United Kingdom of, of Israel, don't get much bigger than that, but... A lot of people believe there's something sacred about this treasure, the elaborateness of how it was buried, the secrecy that would be needed, and the commitment, really, uh, yes. not just a few coins. Yes. So that's a huge thing. I kind of believe that. I'm along those lines. Or like I said, sadly, and in a dark comedy kind of way, it's just it was just some <laughs> it kind was, of contraption. You're thinking, <laughs> <laughs> no, you know what? I also like the, the line that all this rigmarole has happened over some simple misunderstanding or misinterpretation along the lines of David Mamet's uh, movie Homicide, where, you know, it's all this terrible stuff happens to this guy right. because he misinterpreted a scrap of paper, right. essentially, you know, which is, uh, yeah, it turned out to be nothing that he thought it was. Right. Very, yeah, that's a very good point. All right. So here's kind of one of the last ones that I want to cover before we change gears to the heavy hitters. This one regards Francisco Pizarro. Yeah, that's a major theory. Yes. Um, to, uh, Tumbez? Yes, the oh. Tumbez theory. Uh, around 1471, Francisco Pizarro was born. Now, talk about rising from nothing. This guy was the illegitimate son of an infantry colonel and a poor woman from Trujillo, Spain. Hopefully I'm saying that right. He was uneducated and illiterate, according to Wikipedia anyway. <laughs> that, however, did not stop him from becoming one of the most effective conquistadors in history. He's responsible for conquering the Incan Empire for Spain. A lot of natural ability. He had children with over 40 women. Well, 
<laughs> he's adept a, at something. A lot of yeah. little Pizarros out there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> adept yeah. at something nice. But that's irrelevant to his connection to this theory about Oak Island, which states that during one of his several trips to conquer Peru, he came upon the city of Tumbes, which is uh, alternatively spelled T-U-M-B-E-S and sometimes with a Z. I'm not sure the right way, but you'll know what we're talking about, Tumbes. So anyway, Tumbes had at the time a staggering population of up to 180,000 Inca. Wow. Uh, yeah. And, and according to history, Pizarro first visited there in 1528. And I'm getting this from Darcy O'Connor's book, The Secret Treasure of Oak Island, uh, to give credit. So during Pizarro's first visit to Tumbes, he noted that the city was fortified and everything, everything in it seemed to be made of gold and silver. We're talking right down to their daily utensils, you know. Ooh. They just – they had a ton of wealth and, and fancy stuff, yeah, as they would nice. say in the South. Now, when you're a conquistador, your MO is, hey, nice place you got here. I'm going to leave a few friends behind and go check on some stuff and I'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> with more guys. Yeah, exactly. With guns. So the whole idea obviously being to sack – to sack it. So in 1532, it took several years, he finally returned to Tumbes, and the entire city was destroyed, and all the riches were gone. So Not like, by him. Nope. Oh. This, everything was just gone. So now there, there had been a civil war taking place amongst the Inca at the time between two kings that were brothers. It's classic, almost Shakespearean, actually. Mm. And, and So it, it's plausible that they came to blows, and that, that brought the town down, which is what he heard on the ground from people that were still – from Inca that I guess were still behind. And the, and the funny thing about that is you know, greed is at the root of that, which is an irony because later Pizarro himself would be killed for revenge by the son of a man that was like a brother to him who he had executed after what's called the Battle of Las Salinas, which was about nothing more than how to divide the spoils of a conquest. <laughs> so <laughs> greed abounds. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway – there are those that think that Tumbes was never destroyed in a civil war, but that the Inca got wise to the ways of the conquistadors and sacked the city themselves, removing all of its treasures and squirreling them away for safekeeping before Pizarro could return and take them, right? Yeah. So flash forward to the mid-1970s and meet John Wicks. Oh, it's the assassin. No, that's John Wick. John Wick. <laughs> oh, with an S. I'm yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah, different guy, totally. That's the movie they killed the puppy in. People had a problem oh. with that. John Wicks was a medium and a psychic, and he had one of my favorite abilities, which I hope that we can talk about on a show someday. He was an automatic writer. Ah, yeah, very popular during the late uh, 19th century. He's a fascinating thing to watch, an automatic writer do their work. There's probably YouTube videos it's on kinda it. It's kind of creepy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. But anyway, Wicks convinced Mel Chappell and Fred Blair, whom you may remember from such parts as one through three of this. <laughs> <laughs> this which is a year-long project, project of ours. Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyway... He, he managed to convince them that he had been contacted from the other side by a Spanish priest named Menzies who stayed in Tumbes when Pizarro left. He was probably left behind on purpose, right? And But we're going to come back to a, a Spanish priest coming into the story Yes, here we are. So later on down the line. This priest told Wicks through automatic writing and psychic contact that he had developed a respect for the Inca and warned them what was going to happen when Pizarro came back. So in this story... The priest and some other Spanish sympathizers used their knowledge of the sea to help the Inca sail away with the riches of Tumbes into the eastern Caribbean to hide all the gold and treasures. Unfortunately, storms drove them northward all the way to Oak Island, which at the time was uninhabited. So what you have to remember, though, is that this would have been quite an undertaking since Tumbes is in Peru – and it's on the west coast of South America. And the Panama Canal does not exist. Yeah, not, not yet. <laughs> not yet. So they would have had to sail up to Panama, 
crossed the isthmus, which at its narrowest point at the time was 30 miles, I believe. This was 400 years before the mm. canal was completed. Then get in new ships and sail out to the Caribbean, only to be blown north all the way to Nova Scotia, which <laughs> – as a as a day sailor, which I have had in the past, <laughs> yeah, sure, I've I've been knocked off course a little bit here and there. A couple of miles. It's hard for me to imagine being blown in violent storms from the Caribbean all the way to Nova Scotia, but I couldn't find any evidence in any research that I did that said that it couldn't happen or that it, I, I even yeah. looked for the furthest case of something being blown off course and I couldn't find... This is the weakest part of the story for me, is that they accidentally wound up in Nova Scotia from the Caribbean. (laughs) Well, we touched on it a little bit, but that's another major theory believed by Dan Blankenship is that a Spanish ship... Now, it doesn't necessarily mean a conquistador, but a Spanish ship, a galleon maybe, got stranded in bad weather all the way up in Nova Scotia. Right. And uh, I believe he thinks that that... He's always been looking for Spanish gold. Right. Because there's a lot of Spanish artifacts that have been found. Including coins. Of course. Yeah. That doesn't mean that those were taken off a Spanish ship by the Spanish, could be taken off... They could have been taken off of a Spanish ship by a privateer. Right. Stolen 20 times over. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. right. And and, and finally winding up at Anthony Graves' house. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, in a bunch of bags. Yeah, in a bunch of bags. Well, anyways, so the Spanish priest Menzies has communicated to Wicks that after arriving in Nova Scotia, the Spaniards and the Inca, they were... Spaniards were basically traitors to Pizarro. They they were helping the Inca. They chose Oak Island. They built this elaborate underground vault to hold the riches of Tumbes, and then the men who who did that and brought it there all eventually died there on Oak oh, Island. Or uh, well, they do believe that there's graves there, maybe that way down below. Right. So you know, I don't know what to say about this one. My main thing is if they all vanished on the island, shouldn't there be evidence, like you just said, that they were there beyond the Spanish coins, you know, and that stuff? But the other thing is this entire theory is based on believing someone who says they are psychic and they're having a conversation with a Spanish priest from the 1500s. <laughs> <laughs> well, I... Uh, not that we, you know, I mean, hey, you know our show. You've listened to our show. We've we've encountered a lot of strange things. I'm not discounting that. I'm not trying to, you know, I'm just saying it is a bit of a stretch for, for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's based on somebody... No, I guess the thing is Blair and Chapel were quite impressed with this gentleman, Wicks, and uh, he, but he told them, I guess, in one of the sessions that the they the time was not yet right for the treasure to be found. Which is like, you know what? I'm paying you. I don't want to hear that. You know, right. like, I don't know if they're paying him, but definitely <laughs> they they were they were impressed enough to at least give him a listen. Right. Uh, but he didn't come up with anything concrete. All right. So that wraps up sort of the easy ones. Uh, I, I also had come across one that said Sir Francis Drake had been there, but no one's found any supporting evidence. So I'm just mentioning it quickly to yeah. let you guys know that we know about it, but we don't feel like it's worth no, covering in depth right now. There's a whole Elizabethan section right. which of which Drake is part, uh, but also Sir Walter Raleigh and the whole Elizabethan gang. We're going to get to that. Yeah. We are. All right. So before we go any further, we wanted to take a brief minute to mention our first sponsor, Audible, which is really cool because we were big fans of Audible already. So when they approached us about being a sponsor, we were pretty excited. I actually just finished a book that they have in their library called Wool by Hugh Howey. It's a science fiction series. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. It's like a Bradbury-esque 
kind of thing that I enjoy. Oh, is that the people that lived in a silo in a post-apocalyptic setting? Yes, yeah. Uh, they yeah. live in their ground. There's a you whole little society. Yeah, it's, I think it's already been optioned by J.J. Abrams or something. It's oh, going to be course. an amazing movie. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. So, it, But one of the coolest things about Audible is that they are connected to Kindle's WhisperSync feature, and they have a thing called WhisperSync for voice, which is pretty awesome. So what WhisperSync does or has always done is it remembers the last page that you were reading, and then if you pick up another device, like you go from your iPad to your iPhone, you pick it up, it knows the last page you were on. Well, with WhisperSync for voice, you can now alternate between reading and listening to your book, which is really awesome. So if you're reading this book and you really want to keep going on it, but you have to drive somewhere or you want to go jogging or whatever, you activate the WhisperSync for voice feature and it just picks up and you can listen and you can go back and forth between reading and listening, which I love. It's my favorite way to use it. Oh, that is really cool. So right now, they're giving you guys a free audiobook and 30-day trial where you can select anything from their 180,000 titles and be listening to it in minutes. That's right. And by the way, they have a bunch of nonfiction titles, too. Like, they have books on the Templars. They, didn't you say— Oh, that? well, you know, the one that I found uh, that I'm going to get to next is Sir Francis Bacon's New Atlantis. And this is one of the great things about listening to books on Audible is that they have great actors reading them. And this guy's got such a great voice, yeah. you know, in, in the tone. It really puts you into it. Like reading yourself, that's a whole different experience. But also when you're doing something else, it's great to just have somebody read it to you. Yeah, that's awesome. So all you guys have to do is go to audible.com forward slash ALP and get your free book. Okay, so now we get to the heavy hitters. Well, the ones that I think that maybe... I wouldn't say have more credibility, but maybe more feasibility. Yeah, they're more plausible. There's there's motive and opportunity, like a detective would say, Yeah, for these to be plausible scenarios. Yeah, and you just pointed this out in that there is structure, all the things that are necessary for an undertaking of this size. Right, to pull off a project that's yes. monumental. You need a lot of authority structure, which the military has. You need engineering skills, which they have, right? And dedicated. Well, they're in, they're in <laughs> they're inscripted, so they're going to be working for you. But it takes something like that to accomplish a task of this size. So you have a lot of British and French military involvement in the area now for quite a long time, battling back and forth for territories. And there's a lot of people that d believe this. Fred Nolan, you know. He thought it was a contingent of British soldiers after the sacking of Havana in 1762 that they split off and buried part of the treasure that was supposed to go back to England. So they were skimming. Yeah, a little bit of skimming here yeah, and there. It took yeah. a little time for themselves, <laughs> buried this stuff, and would come back for it later. Now, just quickly, it's like I don't think that a British military or any military unit could come back with half of its members, you know, for a little bit. Well, we were just taking a detour here while we buried some stuff. Don't worry about it. Yeah. There, they, you have because be, there's records. There's documentation. Yeah, there's records. There's ship's logs. There's where, a, you yeah. Know. They have to be accountable. Right. And that would raise suspicion. Plus, any kind of military activity there would be seen by people who are already settled in the area. So I don't, I don't really kind of go that, that way. That one seems a little far-fetched. So what yeah. about the French? Yeah, so the French had a settlement that was not far from Oak Island at La Havre, and this would be the early 1600s. And not only were there settlers, but there's military personnel there, French military, to protect them and establish order. And this has fueled one theory, that the French were using Oak Island as maybe a little bit of a bank, getting back to the temporary or communal bank theory, okay. Oak Island, to store riches that had come from their settlement at Louisbourg. And... They're basically hiding it from the British. Okay. So that's one idea. Another theory has the English temporarily storing the contents of a pay ship that, you know, they, again, bad weather. 
They got to unload it for protection. They offload the ship. So it's British payroll, military payroll. All right. There are many missing payroll treasure stores throughout history. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're absolutely Panamint right. Valley. Yeah, there you go. Uh, stuff gets lost. People, City, excuse me. Yeah, people don't get paid. And there's also theories that it involves the American War of Independence, that as the British were fleeing, they suffered some pretty humiliating defeats, thankfully for us anyway. Yes. <laughs> and, but as they're fleeing the New York area and retreating to Halifax, and that George was... George uh, Washington is... General William Howe was retreating from the Boston area, going to Nova Scotia with a fleet, and uh, he was headed to Halifax. But before he got there, being chased by Washington's forces, they think he probably buried some riches, maybe some important documents from the colonies on Oak Island before he got to Halifax as for safekeeping. Did he have time? I mean, well, that's a, that's another question. Is like again, it's a, such a big it's, project, it's, right? If you took yeah, if you took a week and dug a thirty foot hole, that's one thing. Right. But the but the other things that have been found there, and I don't think you'd have to dig it that deep. Like I said, I think you could you could have hit it in the natural terrain well enough that no one's going to find it unless the people you know you, you draw a simple map, put up some stone markers uh, that only you can decipher. By the way, you brought up a point that I want to make sure we make clear to you guys who are listening. I, the idea that something was there and then moved is is a significant idea. It comes up over and over, and again, it's almost as as uh, it's almost as unfortunate for the current searchers as the thing that sometimes makes me snicker a little bit about it just being a, a, a contraption or something that they're trying to excavate, or, you know, or the reference you just made a few minutes ago. Is it possible that it was built to hold something that's been moved? Yeah. How would you know? I definitely think that, yes, it could have been moved. There could be nothing there right now. But I do believe that it held something at some point at some point yeah. that was very important to the people. I agree. It. But that's not much of a payoff for people spending their lives. Well, you don't know. I mean, look, it, again, it could just be Geraldo looking for Al Capone's vault. <laughs> and, and there's a, there a dusty bottle of wine. And I hope it was good wine because that's all that was there. Right. But it becomes more than that at some point. It's solving a really old mystery that could be huge. Right. It has the potential, I believe. But anyway, oh, the other thing I was going to point out, you know, there has been a lot of Masonic symbology found on the island. And a lot of military members of that time, officers especially, were members of the Masonic Order. Which military? You mean the American military? or uh, No, British. British. British and, and some French. Well, George Washington was a Mason, right? Yeah. A lot of our founding fathers were. Washington it might be the only guy that hasn't been associated with Oak Island. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of. I mean, he was chasing the British out of there. And there's other battles that they were losing, like at Yorktown in 1782. And the commanders, uh, Jeffrey Amherst, William Howe. Henry Clinton, Cornwallis. So there are some valid points that are made here in that it's an organization that has the ability to pull this off. Right. The structure, okay. the discipline, the reason, all of yes, that kind of stuff. Exactly. Right. So so we're talking date wise now, seventeen sixties to about seventeen eighties now. This would be around the time of the Seven Years' War. So we're gonna roll back here, seventy, eighty. But those times those time periods are almost too close to when it was found. Wouldn't you say? That's another, yeah, that's another important... I mean, it, it, looked, it looked like it was much older. Yes, things it, were when rotten. When they, they the the logs, it. the platform logs, they said, were rotted. They'd right. been in the ground quite a long time. So from a timeline standpoint, it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. No, the dates make it problematic. So there's not a lot of time for them to accomplish that and let everything settle. Right. Yeah. All right, so how about we roll back the clock to a little bit earlier for some stuff that might make more sense? Right, because now we were talking about the uh, after the Seven Years' War, 
1760s to about 1780s, the American Revolution, all that happening. We're going to go back to about 1690 to about 1701. And one of the more famous guys, Captain Kidd. Captain Kidd. That's right. Everybody, initially, even the guys that found the pit, they were pretty sure that Captain Kidd had something to do with it. Well, he was known in the area. He sailed out of New York, so he wasn't too far away. And he was a Scottish sailor. Born in 1645, and we know exactly when he died because he was hanged and yeah. gibbeted, which means they they kind of chain you up and let you rot over a uh, over the dock there. Yeah, uh, to be a warning for others. So that was May 23rd, 1701. But before that happened, he had some relative successes being a privateer, and we should explain briefly what that is. Yes, the difference between a privateer and a pirate. It's a thin line, I think, but. Yeah, no, no, their activities are essentially the same. You just have government sanction for one being a privateer, and you carry with you a letter of mark and a reprisal, which just allows you, by your home country, to attack enemy ships, steal their valuables, bring them back to England or France. Whatever your home port is. Whatever your home port is, and you get a split of that. Right. So it's profitable for the people doing it and also the kingdom or country from where you come. Right. And in theory, as a privateer, there are ships that you do not attack that are allies of your home port. Oh, yeah. Well, Whereas a, as a pirate, you can attack whatever you want. Yeah. That kind of got Captain Kidd into a little bit of trouble because there was a couple of instances where he refused to attack a ship and the crew didn't like that. That was another thing I was going to bring up is that he was under constant threat of mutiny. Uh, there was a funny little incident before he set off. He, he, was, uh, he was commissioned to go look for pirates and do some privateering and was going to go on this big uh, trip down to the Caribbean. While sailing out of the Thames uh, in England here, he passes a Royal Navy yacht. The custom is, is he's supposed to salute, and <laughs> he doesn't. Well, his crew doesn't. So the yacht fires a shot across the bow, to which his crew responds by slapping their backsides in disdain. It's a huge insult. Oh, nice. So the Navy goes, like, okay, okay, come on over here. Come on. Come on. <laughs> We're going to now take about a third of your crew, or maybe more, and uh, we're going to press them into naval service, which they did not like. They didn't want to do that. Of course not. And Captain Kidd was now in a pickle because he just lost a, a good chunk of his crew, which he had to go pick up now in New York. And what actually ends up happening is that he's now scraping the bottom of the, of the barrel for crewmen. A lot of them were criminals and former pirates. Right. Yeah. So he's got a, a nasty bunch on board now, as opposed to the guys he handpicked, which he was quite proud of doing. These guys were constantly threatening him with mutiny, and he had a kind of an unfortunate incident there. Yeah, well, this ultimately led to his arrest for murder, right? He was, arrested, well, was... he was arrested for murder and conspiracy, and the murder was of one of his crew members, right? Yeah, that was kind of tacked on. He gets railroaded a little bit and, and ends up being kind of a political pawn between the Whigs and the Tories back home. And he's a little bit naive. He thinks he's going to get rescued by his backers, which doesn't really end up happening. They kind of hang him out to rot as literally. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that necessarily is naivete as much as just common politics. You know, well, he probably course. had friends that turned on him. Yeah. Well, no, he, he thought I mean, I'm guessing, you know, I no, actually, you know. no, that's what's, what's documented. Again, he was trying to really stick to the rules mostly. I mean, kid and his men did attack the French Island of Marie Galant and they destroyed the town and looted it. And they got about 2000 pounds of sterling. 
So he had some successes, but he wasn't hugely successful. Not the kind of success I would imagine that would facilitate digging. Require a huge uh, cache. Because he, yeah. had, he had actually buried a smaller cache on Gardner Island. That's true. Yeah. Which the gardeners who owned it were uh, aware of. Yeah, he, fact, gave him he, a little, uh, he gave him a little uh, trinket there. I think he gave uh, Mrs. Gardner a bolt of gold cloth, which I think is still uh, available to see in the museum there. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, but, but, but he, was, yeah. he was kind of playing by rules. He was, he, was act, he was behaving more like a privateer than a pirate. Yeah. However, there was an incident that led to the death of a crew member, right? Yes. Unfortunately, on October 30th, 1697, they're coming up upon a Dutch ship. And one of the crew members, William Moore, was his gunner on board, sharpening a chisel, apparently, and says, hey, Dutch ship, let's go get it. Well, Captain Kidd, again, he's trying to follow the rules I would say mostly. His rules, uh, privateer's rules of engagement. The privateer's <laughs> rules. He's trying to, no, he, he knows that uh, it will not go well for him if he doesn't. And why, can't, why does he not want to attack a Dutch ship? Well, King William is Dutch-born, and if he finds out he's attacked a Dutch ship, it's just not going to go over well. So Kid refused, and then Moore, well, he calls Moore a lousy dog. And this is funny because Moore retorts, if I am a lousy dog, you have made me so. You have brought me to ruin and many more. Well, that kind of pisses off Captain Kidd. So he throws this bucket, which is ringed with iron, you know, for reinforcement, hits him in the head, fractures his skull. The guy dies the next day. Uh. Now, back then, they, they allowed a lot of leeway, you know, from a captain, you know, Captain Bly, or I'm sure you're familiar with that, you know, flogging oh, yeah. people, We're gonna do drubbing them. There's, there's going to be a story about Fletcher Christian for sure. Yeah. Well, he's, and he thought, again, a little bit of naivete. He thought it's like, no, no, I know guys back in England. I'm going to get set free from this. Don't worry about it. Not a big deal. That ends up coming back to haunt him a little bit later because he was ultimately convicted, I think, of five counts of piracy plus the one count of murder. Right. And, and again, this is political. He, they were just ready to get him out of business. In addition to being executed, he was gibbeted, right? Yes. Which it could be gibbeted. What? I don't know. Well, they hang you out. You know the term hanging out to dry. What they did was they hung him. On the second attempt, the first one, the rope broke. So you got to go through that That's again. Like, you're not done. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to do this again. After they hang him, they bound him with chains, I believe, or rope, and then they stick you on a little, uh, 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 what do you call it, a little platform there. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and then they stick you on a, uh, okay, let's start there. I thought you would know, the, not the no. yard arm. I was thinking yard arm, but it's oh, not, it's not yeah. that. Whatever. They put you on this thing. And then they, <laughs> you're hanging out there, dead. They hang you from a post, basically, hanging out over execution dock, and they left him there for three years to rot as a warning to other would-be pirates. And they used to do that quite a bit. The, the bad one is that when they put you, like, in a metal cage and they hang you, they leave you to starve and— Alive. Alive. Yeah. They leave you there to rot, basically. Yeah. So, again, big warning sign. That's how he met his end. Part of the reason that he buried the cash on Gardner's Gardner. Island— yeah. Which, is, by the way, is is not in Mahone Bay. That is, uh, it's down. No, it's down closer to New York. Yeah, yeah. General whole New England region. Again, that's why people knew of him and his legend grew after this trial because it was pretty sensational, and it was very political. Like he thought he had his Whig party backers backing him, and what it turns out is that the Tory ministry was going to use him to embarrass the Whigs. And it turns out he was he didn't name names. Again, he's like, you know, sticking up, oh, I'm not going to name anybody. That kind of had led to his demise a little bit further. They thought that if he had named names, he might have gotten off. 
Huh. Okay. The big picture here I'm trying to paint is that he himself was elected to captain out of mutiny. He was constantly under threat of mutiny, so much though he avoided them when he was coming back to New York. He sailed all the way around Long Island just so he wouldn't have to meet up with them. Right. Not starting off with a great crew of people that want to help you bury treasure and keep it secret. Right. And And also, not a whole lot. I mean, as far as successful privateers go, the amount of his takes is is pale in comparison to a lot of the other guys he was was sailing at the same time with. Oh, no. There was another one, and this is a a juicy little story here. I don't know if there's any movies been made, because it's pretty gruesome. But his contemporary, Henry Avery, was a very famous pirate of the time and probably had the most successful haul of all time. After his crimes, the bounty placed on him was a thousand pounds, which was huge for the time, and led to the first worldwide manhunt because he caused he for caused Avery. A, yeah he caused England a lot of problems. Well, what it showed was that there was some cooperation between some pirates in in trying to you know rob people. So in 1695, his ship, the Fancy, was going to the Comoros Islands, and they raided a French vessel. They they nearly got captured. And then they sailed north to the Arabian Sea, where they came upon a 25-ship convoy of Grand Mughal vessels. They were rulers of the, a lot of India at the time, oh, okay. Muslim, Muslim rulers of the time, up until about the 1850s. And they were making their annual pilgrimage to Mecca. And so they had a bunch of ships, a lot of treasure on board. And there was a, a large ship, the Ganj-e-Sawai, and its escort, the Fatah Muhammad, and the pirates ended up joining forces. So there was a small pirate squadron, and Avery was in charge of kind of the, the lead captain here. He, he had a fast ship. He comes up and overtakes the Fatah Muhammad and also overtakes the Ganj-e-Sawai and snaps their uh, mainmast in a cannonball volley. Big fight on board, just what you see in the movies. Huge battle, several hours of hand-to-hand combat, the pirates ended up eventually winning, with a lot of them killed. But the hull was huge. Uh, I'm trying to read here what they had captured was about 600,000 pounds back then in precious metals, jewels, uh, making him the richest pirate in the world at the time. Wow. The equivalent would be around 52.4 million pounds in about 2010. I did a little conversion, and in American dollars, that would be around 81.17 million dollars. Wow. So 80, Huge 82 hall. million, basically. 82 million. Now we're talking about a sum that might justify a giant contraption, yeah. you know, or or even going in with another pirate or, you know, in this case, Captain Kidd. Now, they, there's been some suggestion that they paired up. I just don't see that happening. Different kinds of men, right? Because exactly. wasn't Avery was like a rapist, Well, right? well this is what things. happened. Yeah, what happened is that after they captured the Fatah Muhammad and the Ganji Sawai, he and his crew, I don't know how involved he was, but certainly he did not disapprove. His crew ended up torturing and killing a lot of the passengers and assaulting women of all ages, so much so that they ended up stabbing themselves or throwing themselves overboard to commit suicide wow. to avoid that fate. So, yeah, I mean, you can, you know, cheer for pirates all you want, but these were really bad guys. Right. And not trustworthy and not ones I would have keep a secret. It did show them coming together, though, in a little bit of cooperation, but only just in robbing and gathering the the booty, but not so much in stashing it. So what happened is, like, after Avery made this huge haul, and he's now a wanted man, they assume aliases, some stay in the, uh, in the Caribbean, some sail back to England and to the North American colonies. And so he it's had- like... Take your cut, split Take, up, yeah, get the hell out of yeah. here. <laughs> well, no, that's the, most pirates were killed. 
right. uh, at the time, and right. you know, were captured or killed. They didn't; their careers didn't last very long. In fact, the other uh, English pirate Thomas II, who was in another ship, he ended up getting killed in a, in a volley on the same raid. It's a very dangerous occupation. Now, ironically, Avery kind of gets his just desserts. He did elude capture. But he changed his name and retired from piracy. It could be in Britain or it could be some tropical island. But with all his money, he's, it's like with any criminal, you've got to launder your money. So in trying to launder his money, he tried to convert it into, into currency and basically got swindled by a lot of wealthy, clever landowners and ended up penniless and, uh, oh, wow. and like a beggar, you know, unable to afford his own coffin. So there you go. Didn't really pay out for him. But that was a huge haul. Aside from the reputation of his career, do we have any direct connections between him and Oak Island? No, I don't think there there was any, again, about that time. So he's just sort of like a good candidate if there was a pirate that might have buried something there worth burying. He would be a good candidate, although he died penniless. Well, there you go. I mean, no, the point is that after this huge haul, it raised everybody's awareness of him. He couldn't surface again. So he had basically he and his crew had to split, change their names never show their faces again right. as as, for, as their own names. So the point being is that if he had done this and then tried to sail to Oak Island and then spend a year or two building this giant bank, doesn't seem likely. But it, you know what, Scott, it gets to the other point I was trying to make is that with governments and pirates alike, when you stash something, you want to get at it right away and easily and quickly. Because you want to spend it. You don't, you're not leaving it for future generations to build a new utopia. You are leaving it there so you can come back in the middle of the night, quickly grab it, and go have yourself a good time if you're a pirate. And if you're a, a government, you're probably spending it on a pork barrel kind of stuff. So there you go. All right. So that, that about wraps up the pirate story. There's lots of other pirates we could talk about. Every single one of these theories could be its own show. We're trying to sum it up for you. We're already looking. We have two hours of raw material right Uh, now, so it's not going to be our habit to make a show this long if anyone's listening for the first time. (laughs) Or still listening after all this time. Yeah, we really just – we didn't want to break this one up into multiple parts. We wanted to get it out to you, and and we also need to get back to our lives. (laughs) (laughs) After months, it seems like. Yeah. But no, I didn't want to rush through the more – juicier, meatier theories sure. towards the end here. But we can't, again, this can't go on forever. Even though I'm sure some of you think it already has. <laughs> it feels that way to us too. Yeah, so to give you a brief overview of where we're headed, we have two more major theories coming here that have lots of ancillary connections to them. Well, yeah. they're a lot meatier. They have cooperation from a lot of different areas. There's parts of them that you may or may not believe, but the core of them is uh, significant for a lot of people who follow the Oak Island saga. I think the people that have really done a lot of studying on it arrive at these two or three major theories. Yeah, it's some sort of iteration of it. So the first one we're going to talk about right now has to do with a lot of people's favorite topics when it comes to strange and unexplained things, and that is the Knights Templar. Yes, or as they're known, the poor fellow soldiers of Christ and the Temple of Solomon. Yeah, so without getting into this, they obviously could be their own show without even talking about Oak Island. Yeah. The, the long and short of the Knights Templar, let's talk a little bit about their origins. Well, what they are is an order of monastic knights, French knights, French noblemen, and there's about nine of them starting out. But what was happening around this time is after the first Crusades happened, a lot of pilgrims were going to the Holy Land on these pilgrimages. And although the air, general areas were safe and secure, the route coming from uh, Jaffra 
at the port going into Jerusalem was laden with robbers and highwaymen. And pilgrims were getting slaughtered sometimes by the hundreds. So they came up with the idea like, hey, let's pitch this to King Baldwin II of Jerusalem and let's get some protection for these folks. We'll have a base there in Jerusalem. So basically that's that's how they started, protecting pilgrims from robbery and massacre. Yes, and that was 1119. So Hugues de Peon approached King Baldwin and the patriarch of Jerusalem, Wormund, and they wanted to create a monastic order. Well, some people think the overriding theory was protection of these pilgrims, but come on, there weren't that many of them, and they needed to grow their, their numbers before actually doing any protection. What they really wanted to do was get at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is believed to have been built over King Solomon's temple and some of the treasures that may have been there to protect them. Because it was changing hands quite a bit, you know, between Christians and Muslims over the years. And that may have been one theory. So what ended up happening, though, is even though they, were, they took vows of poverty, vows of chastity, they themselves were not very rich. They, they were became, depicted uh, two to a horse, right? Riding that's, two that's, men on one horse. It symbolizes how poor we are. We can only, there's two of us. We can only afford one horse. Right. But ironically, they became the largest, one of the largest financial institutions in Europe, if not all of Europe. And they started things like letters of credit, because the idea was that you would, uh, you're a pilgrim, you're going to make this long journey, you could deposit your valuables in a Knights Templar commandery or whatever, you know, they're basically, they're... Uh, they're inventing the bank, in a way. They're inventing a bank, yeah. So yeah. basically... Not, I shouldn't say they're inventing the bank, but they're inventing no, a but, form of banking. Uh, yeah, a form of lending. So basically, you deposited your valuables, you get to the Holy Land, you got a letter from the the last place you were at saying how much they owed you, and then you had your money there. You were making a comment about that before, who goes on these long trips carrying all your valuables. So you show up, but anyway, it was, it was a uh, a letter of credit. So you have this order here who becomes massively powerful monetarily. Insanely wealthy. Yes, because they were also buying property, managing churches, different things. They had their hands in different different things, all on the up and up for the most part. But people will say the side thing was that they really wanted to get at these treasures to protect them. They weren't, you know, because again... That they, they were had a noble cause. They had a noble cause, but it was kind of secret. But who didn't like this? Well, that was King Philip IV, or Philip the Fair, as he was known. Not very fair, yes, we've though. talked to him, bef- talked about him before in prior episodes. Philip the Fair was not a nice guy. No. <laughs> he was the well, furthest thing from fair. He was a little bit Machiavellian. So he... Uh, he owed them a ton of money, right? Yes, because he was constantly at war with England. So he, that cost a lot of money. The Pope before Clement V... The Pope before him kind of mysteriously disappeared, or he... Or he oh, that's or he right. They, they picked him up, and he died under mysterious circumstances. Yes, right? I'm sorry. Yeah, he yeah. didn't disappear. He died, as a lot of Popes did back then. They yeah. died, died under uh, kind of a shady circumstances. Okay, you're done. Yes. Yeah, so <laughs> you you're out of here, dude. You're not agreeing with us completely. We don't like that. Right. So Clement V is installed, who's related to Philip IV. Right. Uh, so they thought he was kind of a puppet Pope there, and he gets installed, and he doesn't really see much wrong with that, but he gets a lot of pressure from Philip the Fourth, who wants to clear his debts because he's heavily indebted now to them. This What's reminds the... me of Putin and uh, Medvedev. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> well, I'll just put my guy over here and yes, keep he seems everything. to magically agree with everything I say. Yeah, after I say it, but that's kind of what happens. They uh, he wants to get out of debt, and so they started. There was a um, an ousted Templar who started making these accusations 
to the Pope and everyone else because, you know, he's disgruntled saying that, hey, they have some very weird and blasphemous practices they do for the initiates and it's there's some buggery involved. It's not, you got to check into this. I don't like them. So Philip IV basically uses these charges against them, and it's things like... Trumped up charges. Well, they're accused of spitting on the cross, uh, inappropriate kissing, (laughs) weird, kind of strange things, but basically blasphemous things that are considered heresy. It's mudslinging. uh, Yeah, but it's... uh, Good old-fashioned political mudslinging. It's hard to prove. So that's what's getting him going. People hear about this. There's a huge scandal. Not only does Philip IV pressure Clement the Pope, into bringing about charges and rounding these guys up. There's a lot of public pressure now because it's a scandal. So at dawn on Friday the 13th, October 1307, which some folks think that that's where we get Friday the 13th. As a day of bad luck. As a day of bad luck. That's right. Philip IV orders a simultaneous roundup of all Templars right at dawn, in the middle of the night. Uh, He gets them all rounded up, arrested, brings them up on charges, Except that they think that some Templars got word of this. Ahead of time. Ahead of time. And they made a plan. And they made a plan. 12 to 14 ships left in the middle of the night or maybe a little bit before that for destinations unknown. Now, they think some of them, they kind of know where they went. They left La Rochelle, France, and some went to Scotland because at the time, Scotland had been excommunicated by the whole of the Catholic Church because Robert the Bruce had killed a guy on the steps, one of his enemies, he'd killed him on the steps of a church, so they didn't think that was cool. But it made Scotland a safe place for these Templars to go. Think they didn't think that was cool. <laughs> he, Not cool, dude. Not cool. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it gave them safe passage to a place where they could hang out and possibly stash some treasures that were absconded with, or that they had in their possession, basically, they were trying not to give them over back to, to the king of France. Right. And supposedly the guys who stayed behind to be rounded up because they knew they were going to be rounded up volunteered to stay behind so that the other ones could get away, right? That's one theory. Very brave of them. One of them was the Grand Master, Jacques de Molay. Have you heard of the the, organiz- the Catholic organization de Molay? Yeah, of course. It's a, a yeah. youth thing. Yeah. yeah. So he gets captured. He had been lured there before. Uh, he was supposed to meet up with also the uh, the Grand Master, the, the Knights Hospitaller, where we get the name hospital. Oh. And uh, he starts talking with the Pope. Basically, he gets arrested as well. He confesses under torture. But then as soon as they were able to get out of the country, he recanted his confession. That's right. As soon as he knew that they had safely gotten away with the treasures. Yeah. He basically tells them all to go to hell, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was in 1314. But this is what I love, too, because uh, rarely do curses work so well. But according to legend... And actually, they, I think they wrote down what he said. Right, because they, they burned him at the stake, right? Yes. And he requested that he be tied up so his hands could be bound in prayer. And he utters this curse to Philip and Clement. God knows who is wrong and has sinned. Soon a calamity will occur to those who have condemned us to death. So Pope Clement ended up dying a month later. King Philip died in a hunting accident before the end of the year. It's a it good worked. curse. <laughs> yeah, it worked. Well, yeah. He had it, some... to, it makes you wonder about the power of the Knights Templar to have a curse followed through on that. But and <laughs> conversely, if these guys were just in banking, it, it demystifies them a little bit. <laughs> well, <laughs> they depending had, on how you look at it. They, on, the, on the surface, they are what they are. They're a group of knights, and they, they're very well-versed in battle. Like They had some great successes for small numbers. 
but they knew what they were doing. And generally a good organization, and even the Pope soon after declares them innocent. The next Pope, you mean? No, the same one. Oh, the one yeah. that died yeah, a month right later? After, yeah, like, well, that was in 1314. Okay. So right after, though, they were arrested, he issues a statement that they're innocent, in essence. So they're off the hook. Except however, however, uh, well, he did. God dealt he with still him. Broke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Most of the wealth goes to the Knights Hospitallers, but the, some of the, yeah, some of the guys dis- disappeared. Now, here's one interesting thing I wanted to mention before I forget, and it kind of turns in with a little bit maybe with uh, Henry Sinclair and his vo- possible voyage. But we were talking about the Mi'kmaq, uh, yes. indigenous peoples of that area. Their ceremonial flag is the reverse identically, of the Templar battle flag. That's right. I which forgot is, about that. I remember reading. I completely... Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up. How did that happen? Yeah. That's a little unusual. Think it, of, Say that again, because that's really important. Okay. The Mi'kmaq ceremonial flag is the reverse of the Templar battle flag. Look it up on... We'll have a picture no, of that yeah, on the We'll website. have a picture of it yeah. on the site. That is pretty amazing. It's so unusual. B- before we move on you know, to Sinclair and that sort of thing, yeah. how, what connections are we making between the Templars who got away, and Oak Island. Well, they think that there was some travel from Europe to the Americas before, you know, Columbus, certainly. That's one, that's one theory. So, but, but ultimately, some of the treasure that was removed before they were rounded up has been accounted for, not necessarily tracked, but more or less they think they know where it went, and some of it they don't, and that is the connection to Oak Island, one of the main connections to Oak Island. Well, you think— There's a supposition— Yes. Now we're getting into the theories of a couple of people that have appeared on the current show. And these are writers and historians. And that is Kathleen McGowan and Alan Butler. And they are historians and they have this, they kind of go off in this belief as well, that the, possibly the Cathars were working with the Templars. They were, the Cathars were under siege. Right. They transferred possibly some holy relics. We should explain just briefly who the Cathars were. Hey, you said the word Cathars, so now you've got to tell people. Everybody doesn't know who the Cathars. Well, to be official, let's just go they? this way. They weren't the Catholics, and that was a problem <laughs> no. for the Catholics. <laughs> yeah, thanks for your. Uh, That's my your, quick your, explanation. Your, your university level explanation there. Cursory research. Well, they were a Christian movement, a, a sect you could call it, who believed in kind of the dual nature of God, and were not really looked down upon favorably by the Catholic Church, the main body of force at the time. So they were a little bit persecuted. Yeah, there's only room for one of us in this town. <laughs> well, <laughs> they, you know, anybody who's got different beliefs, you could easily be put up on charges of heresy. And I wanted to make that point earlier. The two big causes of death back then, heresy and high treason, two of which you could easily be charged with yes. at a whim with some flimsy uh, I love the I love the term high treason. High treason. Yeah, you don't want to... Was there a low treason? Uh, I think there was treason we're not going to bother with. And then the other one was like, you're causing us problems. You are now treasonous to the crown. You get to die. Or to the the church. Uh, The outcome of which is that you were usually burned alive. So not good stuff. Yeah, which is not a fun way to go. Now, Alan Butler believes that after leaving La Rochelle, France... The Templars made their way, again, to Kilwinnig, Scotland, eventually, and they hooked up with the Turinensian monks, who were experts in mining and tunneling, oddly enough. Oh. They'd done a little bit of that in Europe. Okay. Gathered some skill from them and maybe some knowledge, then kind of took off and maybe visited Rosalind Chapel as well. There's a whole tie-in. We're going we're to get that in a little bit. 
But you know the whole thing about Rosalind Chapel. Oh, yeah. That goes all the way back to Holy Blood, Holy Grail, yeah, and yeah. ultimately some inspiration for Dan Brown as well. Of course. A place of mystery. Even the, the uh, Sinclair heirs, the one uh, currently living, did a little bit of digging underneath it. That's right. Yeah. Didn't find anything, though. At least that he told us about. No. But here's another important thing. They weren't just bankers, the Templars. They had access because of you know what you said. Some people think, what were they trying to do originally? That's the theory, is that when they were in Jerusalem at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which supposedly was built over the top of Solomon's Temple, which we're not getting into politics here, but that's a powder keg yes. over there. I'm sure you heard. <laughs> uh, it's about pretty who's, much the preeminent powder keg in the world. Yeah, one of the big ones. Who owns it? Who gets to dig there? That's why no digging has been done. But they think when the site was in Christian hands, as I'll say, with the Crusaders, that they had access to it and they could do some digging on their own and or possibly found some relics and treasures. Now we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. Big stuff. The Holy Grail. Possibly the Spear of Longinus. Right, which we made reference to earlier, the Spear of Destiny. Also, possibly the Golden Menorah of Solomon himself from his temple, so which was sacked uh, by Titus in, uh, I think, 79 AD. All right, so what we're doing right now for you guys is establishing that the Templars may have some pretty heavy-hitting religious relics in their possession, and those relics are all currently missing. As far as we know, there's there's no one that knows where <laughs> any of that stuff is. It wasn't in the Well of Souls. Right, yeah. right. And so... Aren't there some common elements between Enoch's chambers beneath the mosque that they had access to and Oak Island? Yes, that's a that's a there's some parallels, right? That is a theory put forward by Alan Butler, uh, who I mentioned, who's on the show. You can go see these guys if you rent the show or you've seen them already on the History Channel, which is kind of fun because that's they're explaining their theories better than I am. So. <laughs> but his theory is that what's been found in the money pit resembles. Enoch's chambers. And what those are, Enoch was the great-grandfather of Noah, and he lived to be about 365 years, and he was beloved by God and thought to be such a virtuous man that he did not die, according to the Bible. God took him up. He wanted his company. He took him up. He, he, uh, into he heaven. ascended. Well, he, <laughs> like he ben, also— Like Ben Kenobi. A little, yeah, I don't know. If that's blasphemy. I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> heresy. I, I apologize if I offended anyone. With blasphemy that, with that remark. I'm, you're fine. I'm sure, but he uh, was taken away, and God says to him, "You have yearned to know my name." So God tells him his real name, the true name of God, the true name of God. He takes him up to a mountaintop where he sees the name written in the clouds. He then whispers his real name. You know that's why he's called Yahweh, right? He who must not be named. Like because Voldemort. There's something, well, there's some power. Parallels. There is power in that. There's something about that. And again, that ties into the rules. Yeah, he something... leans down, God leans down, and he goes, Fred. <laughs> it could be the, <laughs> I, think it would, I think it would be more Semitic, but yes. Yeah, no, okay. I know. That's so another, he, uh, another, another blaspheme. Thank you. losing listeners by the dozen. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Which would Please send your letters no. directly to Scott in the mailbox. <laughs> so Enoch now knows the true name of God, and he inscribes it on a stone triangle called the Delta. And yes. to protect this and the other accumulated secrets and knowledge of the earth, he knows the flood is coming. So he digs nine chambers below the earth. The first eight are for protection and about 10 feet, I guess, is considered. And then in the ninth one, he makes a pedestal and he puts this golden Delta on there with the name of God on it for right. protection. And But it was never, it was kind of lost. However, they think that they found it 
when they went to build Solomon's temple the first time, they think they found Enoch's chambers. All right, just and just quickly, for those of you that might not remember, and I don't know how you would as long as this show's been, <laughs> going back to the prior episodes, nine chambers with the pedestal at the bottom, the the money pit originally, there were nine wooden platforms, 10 feet apart, pretty much just like Enoch's chambers, and the stone with the inscription. The 90-foot stone. Was, the 90-foot stone was at that exact same level. There's a sobering parallel between Enoch's chambers and the money pit's original construction before it's you know was excavated and Freemasonry. Exactly. This all ties in together. That's another one of my big themes throughout life. All knowledge is connected. Everything is connected. So what you have here is that no, it's not Enoch's chambers exactly on Oak Island, but the group who dug it patterned it after something historical and sacred that they knew about. Because the Royal Arch of Enoch also comes up in the teachings of Freemasonry as an allegory, which is an extended metaphor. But these are all done to teach morality, spirituality, being good to your fellow man. These are all good principles that are kept secret because guess what? Back in the day, if, you, if people found out about your organization, they didn't like you, they started making up stories. Next thing you know, you're, you're char-roasted. Right. I believe that's a lot of the reason for the secrets of Freemasonry is that it's a good thing, but we're not telling everybody – which, again, that garners suspicion, because you're not, why aren't you telling us? And also, you make reference to the, the inscription of God's true name on the delta. Yeah. There's a delta on the island. The swamp yeah. is shaped like a delta. I thought about that. Yeah. The, the swamp keeps coming up. I know Marty does not like it. <laughs> well, it's, it's smelly. It's full of mosquitoes. It's a lot of muck. And hard but to drain. It, yeah, it's hard to drain. But it keeps coming up. When we get to the psychic connection part, it keeps coming up again as well. Right. So anyway, we, we're drawing a lot of parallels here with what the Templars had access to and what what might have been worth putting on Oak Island. That's the idea, for me anyway, is that there's something of tremendous world-changing value value with this, and that is, was it just a, a box full of doubloons? Do we have any connections between the Templars and an ability to construct such a thing as Oak Island? Well, that's what Alan Butler believes, is that the Templars conferred with the Turinensian monks who were adept at building tunnels and mining. Okay. You know, maybe not on that scale and maybe not building treasure traps, but, you know, they knew about it, certainly. And he thinks that that's kind of where the knowledge came from. And that is the reason that this is something very holy to these people, that this is a sacred task, which would require secrecy, dedication over a long period of time uh, under harsh conditions. All right, so now this brings us to the Sinclair family, right? Well, the the main guy, Prince Henry Sinclair, and I'm sure if you followed any of that kind of stuff with Rosalind Chapel, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, big figure, the mainstream historians will say he had nothing to do with any of that. A lot of stuff has been attributed to him, which he actually didn't do. Uh, but his name was Henry Sinclair, Earl of Orkney, Baron of Rosalind, and he was born circa 1345, died circa 1400. And he was a Scottish and Norwegian nobleman. You know, my friend Eric Durbin says that all things go back to Scotland. <laughs> if you're in Scotland or well, just, no, just in general? Well, no, just about all the to- almost all the topics that we talk about, everything. They, like, oh, yeah. That when you start looking at history, everything goes back to Scotland, and I, I tend to agree with Oh, them. yeah, no, tons of great inventions and a lot of great thinking, a lot of philosophy. And you know why? Because the weather is sometimes awful, so people are inside thinking about stuff. <laughs> it's what Dave Grohl says of why there's great songwriting in Seattle, so... <laughs> 
Well, but you and I go back to, to Scotland a little bit. I'm, I'm Clan Mackay. Yep, and I'm Clan McCaslin. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> we all go back to Scotland. Well, yes. You know what? Henry Sinclair may not have uh, done everything that's attributed to him, but his grandson, William Sinclair, did build Rosalind Chapel. Right. And just quickly here, before we get back to Henry, Alan Butler thinks that using the distance of megalithic yards between Rosalind Chapel and Rosalind Castle, uh, he calculates that as 366 megalithic yards, which is equivalent to about 996 feet. I think it's a, it pretty much is. And then, But he wants them to dig due west at a fixed compass point from the money pit on the island. So he suggested that to Marty and Rick Lagina. Use that calculation, go due west from the money pit, and it puts them near the swamp, I think. Okay. Which, they, which they don't want to go back to. But, right, right. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to Henry Sinclair, in 1398, the voyage he possibly made was described in detail in a document known as the Zeno Narrative. And it was by Venetian navigator Antonio Zen. So maybe it was Zeno narrative. And as Mark Finnan says in his book, historian and author Frederick Pohl has documented landfall descriptions in the narrative which match coastal locations in Nova Scotia. Okay. Okay, so that's one tie-in that Sinclair had made the voyage over there long before, 100 years before Columbus. Sure. At least. The other thing that they point out in the show that I've heard, again, a long time before that show came out was that if you look at Rosalind Chapel, in the stonework, there's things like pictures of corn, what appear to be corn, and the flower, the trillium, different things that are not found in Scotland, only in the North America. Right. So that is a little interesting, that why would that come back and make it into a chapel, into the stonework, into the carvings? So there's a bunch of little clues. And then getting back to the statement from Mark Finnan's book, okay, so ever since, there has been speculation that St. Clair, whose family had been involved in the Crusades to Jerusalem, had given safe refuge to Templars, and their excommunication by Pope Clement V in 1307 may have brought some of the reputed missing Templar treasures, including sacred relics, to the New World. Okay. So that's kind of the, in a nutshell, that's kind of the idea. He went over there, helped him out. Another interesting thing, the Mi'kmaq have a legendary figure within their legends and lore that they call Gluskop. Okay. But he was a, a figure that they found to be almost godlike and mystical that came from a long time ago, and he showed up, and he showed them new ways of fishing and some farming techniques and maybe hunting, and they were enamored with this guy. They thought he, yeah, they thought he was a, like a demigod of some kind. He had all this knowledge and technology that they'd never seen before. So, so we're making a connection between Sinclair... Possibly, and, right. possibly. Anyway, that's he's kind of known that, uh, yeah... It again ties back with the flag. Well, the flag was Templar, wasn't it? Yes, oh, no. the reverse. It's the reverse of the Templar battle flag. Wait, how does that tie to Sinclair? Sinclair, they believe, was connected with the Templars. Not okay. only that he gave them refuge. Okay, but so there we're was making a connection between Sinclair and the Templars and the flag and the Mi'kmaq. Yes, because his, his family was involved, the Sinclair family were involved in the Crusades. Right. And here's another interesting tidbit from the show. Is that, uh, remember I mentioned Jay Hutton, Commander Pulitzer? Yes. Pulitzer? Yes. Uh, the treasure hunter. It, actually, his company is called Treasure Force. So he takes them on the show to, I believe, somewhere on the mainland. Maybe it's Western Shore. But he finds a stone uh, kind of buried under grass. I don't know how he found it. But it's got an eight-pointed star uh, inscribed in the stone, which is kind of rounded and polished a bit, which is pretty interesting because it, it could be Templar symbology. Oh, Wow. Okay. So there you go. I mean, That's a recent find? 
I don't know. You know what? I don't, they don't say so on the show. I don't know when he found it, but he points it out to the brothers. He takes them on a special trip. Okay. Now, he comes later on the show with another, with another theory, though, is that he thinks, just to mention it here, that he thinks that what was inscribed on the 90-foot stone is a language called Tifanag, and it's a Punic language, it's, but it has a lot of the same. It's not exactly the same from what I could tell, but a lot of the symbols are very the same, squares with dots in them, triangles with slashes through them. So he's making a connection that it could be the ancient Phoenicians, which ties into another theory I, I, I don't think we can get into here, but that the site, the, the Oak Island site, was founded by early Christians, Coptic Christians escaping the turmoil of Egypt in the political scene there, coming to the New World and setting up camp. And, uh, and there's a whole other transcription of the stone Oh, that's right. The yeah. Coptic tra- – I, I just came across that the other day, actually, when I thought I had seen everything. Yeah, I keep finding things, too, that surprise me. But I guess the translation was done by a Harvard zoology professor named Dr. Barry Fell. And what he came up with was this. The people shall not forget the Lord. To offset the hardships of winter and the onset of plague, the Arif, he shall pray to the Lord. So basically, it's not so much. Tre- I mean, there might be some religious treasure and archaeological treasures there, right? But not a cache of gold or the Ark of the Covenant. It's basically an early Coptic Christian site. Okay. So getting back to Commander Pulitzer, he thinks that the site could be Phoenician because the, in 1996, three ancient Carthaginian coins were found there. Really? Well, not on the island, I believe, kind of, but right off the island on the main on the mainland there. Oh, okay. Uh, but, you know, there's all kinds of uh, old stuff that's not... Uh, well, I mean, we have to remember, you know, the Vikings could have been in the area hundreds of years before even Sinclair went over there. And they were well-traveled, right? Well, I that's... Mean, yeah. But see, that's kind of my... Everyone's dropping their chains. <laughs> Everyone's dropping cords. That's kind of my thinking as well, is that there's been different groups over the years, could be hundreds of years, that have visited the island, possibly dropped things. It makes it confusing as to what... as to There's no single group of people... That have left their mark. It may have been several, but I believe that what's down below in the caverns there may be one or two groups working in conjunction over a distant period of time. But in any case, so he concludes that it possibly might be the Ark of the Covenant brought by the Phoenicians after the first sacking of Solomon's Temple by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. So back to Solomon's Temple, much earlier time, still Ark of the Covenant. So he's still with me here. It's Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but getting back to the translation of the stone, there was another guy, Daniel Ronstam from Sweden, and he makes an appearance on the show. And he has an interest. He's an amateur cryptographer. Is this about the corn? Yes, it is. Yeah, I love that one. But he has an interesting translation. Now, I guess there was a deciphering done by Dr. Ross Wilhelm, a U.S. Army cryptographer. And Daniel Ronstam thinks that that translation is incorrect because he was using a 17th century Spanish alphabet when he should have been using an English one of the time. And Daniel Ronstam's translation, though, is at 80 feet, guide corn, comma, long, narrow, sea inlet, then a space, then drain, dash, F. And he believes the F stands for Francis Bacon. Yeah, okay. So now we're getting into something that some people have probably been waiting on. Big, yes, a big, juicy, tasty section of bacon here, which ties in really closely to a lot of, um, I would say, very compelling arguments. Yes, some very compelling arguments. For the designer 
of this whole thing we've been talking about. Before we get too far down the rabbit hole on Sir Francis Bacon, we want to talk a little bit about the overarching mystery behind Francis Bacon's connection to Shakespeare and how this all relates potentially to the money pit. We're going to cover it because we want you guys to be up to speed on it. But the goal of this show is not to go super far down into the controversy relating to whether or not all of Shakespeare's works were actually penned by Sir Francis Bacon. Yeah, that is a whole other show. And one day we should probably tackle it. Thank you for saying one day. I can't handle it anytime soon. (laughs) I can barely deal with JFK on the docket. (laughs) uh, I've uh, I'm trying to cure Scott of promising shows exactly on the dot, which he loves to do to everyone who writes in. And thank you for writing in and suggesting. No, what I wanted to say is that this is one of the big theories, the idea of Shakespeare writing Shakespeare or Bacon writing Shakespeare. And in one sense, it really doesn't matter because the design of the money pit could be to hold other sacred texts and bits of knowledge that he wanted to keep for future generations. Because he he did have a whole idea of creating a new Atlantis, a new utopia in the new world. That's right. And as a Rosicrucian, which we're going to talk about a little bit here in a minute, he had access to all kind, potentially all kinds of sacred knowledge that goes beyond just the plays of Shakespeare. Yes. A thing that we're going to point out here is that there was a group of really smart guys around this time. It was the time of great enlightenment from a, a relatively dark period, which had nothing but religious, political conspiracies and turmoil for a long period. And, and basically the, the greatest thinkers of the time wanted to get away from that. They thought mankind could live better. And with the philosophies embedded in these sacred texts, they thought that mankind could evolve. Well, one of the things that has occurred to me through the research that we've been doing for this show is that it seemed to me that they were taking a risk by sharing this information through Shakespeare's plays, whether it was Shakespeare and Bacon or whoever, by sharing information with the masses on how to act, on how politics work, on behavior, on telling stories that they might not have heard otherwise, and that they, that, that was a dangerous thing to be doing. And so there was an implication that that would be one of the reasons that Bacon would have to write under a pseudonym, because he would be putting himself at risk if he published it, since he was friends with with royalty and the courts and all oh, that, yeah. right? Well, as we, so that's yeah. the whole idea. So just to explain to our listeners, why would he do that? Why would he publish this stuff under Shakespeare's name? Well, a lot of folks were doing that at the time because as we previously mentioned, you could easily end up under the executioner's axe for high treason or be burned at the stake for heresy by the church because uh, you're just going against their doctrine. And it's a form of control. It's a form of uh, keeping down any kind of dissent Putting it in a play is a clever way to disguise it as entertainment, but also moral instruction. And you're right, as far as like how people should treat each other, how government should behave, the proper way to think about things disguised as entertainment, which was wildly popular at the time. Right. And and, and Bacon was a genius. I mean, there was no question. He was well-educated on many fronts. He was revered by men of all kinds. And in fact, he had been one of the editors on the King James Bible as well. I mean, this guy was a heavy hitter. And so it is completely plausible that he was doing all this and pulling off this ruse so that he could be sharing this information with the masses. That's a good summation of where we're at there. Let's talk a little bit about the Rosicrucian order, which he was a member of. These are not new ideas, even, even for that time period. The ideas of Rosicrucianism, Hermeticism, which we'll get to, these come from the secret teachings probably originating in ancient Egypt with Hermes Trismegistus. And basically it deals with ancient knowledge of how the universe works, how humans should behave, the moral and proper way to 
do things. Whatever your ethnicity, whatever your church, whatever temple you go to, the overarching idea is that there is a universality of spirituality that reaches all people. And right. so there's, a, there's one way to divine truth, shall that, we say. And that's the definition of a hermetic of a hermetic organization or hermetic thought is it, it goes back to that, which goes back to the gentleman you mentioned. <laughs> I'm not going to try to say his name. Hermes Trismagistes, yes, I tris, think. Tris I think that's, that's roughly how it is. But it also ties in with alchemy, the study of the motion of the planets, astrology. Now, all these guys during this time were really into this. Francis Bacon was also contemporary and associate of John Dee, Queen Elizabeth's geographer, astrologer, mathematician. You know, he also uh, studied the Voynich manuscripts for a little bit, which we'll talk about. These guys were, yes, they were geniuses. They were dabbling in a bunch of new ideas. You know, Francis Bacon, he came up with the scientific method. Right. Of, of the father how, of the scientific yeah, method. Right. Yes. And also his own Baconian cipher. Yes. He was very much into cryptography. And at this point, we should make reference to a man known in Baconian circles and also in circles related to Oak Island as the organist. <laughs> We're going to talk about uh, Petter. Mr. Petter Amundsen. Yes. Petter yes. Amundsen is an organist from Norway who has has more than a passing interest in cryptography. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he stumbled upon it. That's his day job is, yes, he's an organist in the Holmacolan Chapel. And he, I think, I can't remember how he got interested in it, but I think maybe it was a documentary he saw because he's also of the mind that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare. That's the end of that. And I think he saw something that started to get his mind working. And he noticed something odd about the wording on Shakespeare's tombstone in that there's no mention of him. <laughs> his name's not on it. No dates or anything. Just an interesting little ditty. Well, first of all, originally yeah. there were letters that were oddly capitalized. Right. Not necessarily in the right places. And there were some other issues with it. However, that stone, that original stone, had been removed and replaced, which he later came to believe was to conceal the cryptography that was in the original stone right. that had a message. There's a lot of information on this, not the least of which is a four-hour series that we have links to on Vimeo on our yes. website that is really fascinating that talks about how he came to all his conclusions and the things that he managed to find in the first folio, yeah. which is one of the earliest publications of Shakespeare's work that's available to us because the originals are not available. And it's it's thought to be a word-for-word -word copy of, you know, in, in terms of its arrangement and everything of the of some of the original work. And within the first folio, he was able to do overlays of patterns, including right triangles and fine connections. Well, you want to talk the word bacon. And there was there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. For me, I have mixed feelings about this whole theory, and I have much respect for Petter, who's put a lot of time in this. And he has a new documentary coming out, a new film coming out, which um, I've seen a teaser for that looks amazing. No matter what, how you feel about it, it's very fascinating information. On the other hand, I don't know if you guys remember the Bible Code, but this book was a bestseller. I guess in the '90s, I think it was. Or no, it, I got the uh, yeah. There was a follow-up copy or the Bible Code Two, which I picked up. I'd heard about it, and I just it was it was at uh, Barnes and Noble back when we had bookstores. Yeah, I picked up a copy, and it's a very interesting and compelling phenomenon. Yeah, it suggests that the the entire Bible, and I actually can't remember which version uh, of the Bible now. Apparently, it only works with. The first five books of the Bible, which okay. are what the Hebrews follow, which would be considered the Torah, part of the first five right. books I remember of Moses. That now. Right. Yeah. It's been several years since I read it, but it sort of suggests that if you take the text of 
the first five books of the Bible and you make matrices out of them, almost like a word search that you would get out of we come back to Reader's Digest, <laughs> or, you know, we, the word search, you can start to make connections. You look for these words that connect, and when they intersect, there's a meaning to them. And the overarching theme is that the text of the Torah is has a grand, intense mathematical engineer behind it. Exactly. You, you're thinking on a higher level. Like the Elizabethan thinkers of the day were into mathematics and as Francis Bacon came up with, the bilateral cipher. What Petter discovered is that in the original printings of the plays themselves, that certain things were not matching up. There's strange capitalizations of certain letters that didn't make any sense. Intentional errors. Intentional which... errors. And another thing Peter says in his in the documentary, The Sweet Swan of Avon, is that in the world of cryptography, if you want to hint that there is something of note, you make a small mistake. Right. And in one of the funerary inscriptions for Shakespeare, it says he died at 53, which is not correct. He died at 52. Right. And you think people would know that, especially back then. The idea, though, is that in a bilateral cipher, I've also heard biliteral, so bilateral, biliteral. I'm not sure which one is totally correct. But what the idea is, is that you read something and that has one meaning and that anyone can read that. That's just the words. But contained within the words is another message. And that's how people of the Elizabethan era got around being persecuted for new ideas and expressing thoughts that may not go with the current government or religious order. Right. Petter has spent a lot of time working on this, and he's not the first person to take a look at things like this. It actually brings to mind a gentleman I stumbled across in our research, Dr. Orville Ward Owen, who lived from 1854 to 1924. He was an American doctor. And he believed in the Baconian theory of Shakespearean authorship. And he spent his whole life – he created this thing called a cipher wheel, which you've got to see a picture of this. Thing oh, right. that's what Daniel Ronstam uses to get his deciphering of the 90-foot stone. Right. It's a, it's an amazing – so he's got this thing. It, it, it collates printed pages from the works of Shakespeare and Francis Bacon, and you look for codes in it. Now, the cipher wheel eventually was completely dismissed by cryptologists. So there's some question as to how – useful it was, but he continued to find messages in there. Eventually, he passed away pretty much penniless, and according to Wikipedia, he was full of regret for sacrificing his career, reputation, and health on the Baconian controversy, and warned admirers to learn by his example and avoid it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> well, it, it's a that's a deep rabbit hole. And Petter, I know, by the way, I know there's a chance that you might hear this, because I know you're on the, <laughs> with the private group on Facebook that is aware of our show. We have tremendous respect for you and how much effort you've put into your work, and we're very much looking forward to your new film on it. Uh, but coming back around, full circle, can, can you talk a little bit more about Petter? Yeah, I'll give the, uh, again, we don't want to get too deep in the weeds here, but this is what directly relates to the money pit. And these are very broad strokes and we're not doing it justice. If you want, again, go to the webpage. We'll have links to his website and the four-part Norwegian television documentary on Vimeo. It's really interesting. Very well done. It's, it's actually very smooth and it's very compelling. Yes, high production value. Yeah, very very nice. And we're not going to be doing the full idea justice here, but I'll, we'll just hit the broad bullet points uh, that were mentioned also in the uh, History Channel show. So the connection that Petter makes is that Shakespeare was called, his one of his nicknames was the Swan, given to him by possibly Francis Bacon. And so he was known as the Swan or the Sweet Swan of Avon, which is the title of the Norwegian show. Now, the Swan is also a constellation called Cygnus, C-Y-G-N-U-S. And what does it look like, Scott? 
It looks eerily similar to the large boulder cross found on Fred Nolan's property yes. by Fred. Yes, the, the Nolan cross. <laughs> yes. And if you remember what we're talking about, it's a large megalithic, meaning it's made out of giant boulders. And again, I was reading this factoid here. These boulders are massive. They're eight feet across by nine feet high, conical in shape, which means they're kind of cone-shaped, pointing towards the sky. And where they all meet in the center, that's where Fred Nolan dug up the large stone that looks like slightly like a, a shape of someone's head. Yeah. They think that these things are about 10 tons each. Right. And there is a geologist, and, and she's noted in Mark Finnan's book, Dr. Petra Moody, who concluded that these were not geologically natural, that somebody – these were man-made. These were put there. I don't know how you would move giant stones like that onto an island in that configuration. But in any case, it kind of matches up to the constellation, the swan. Right. So, so to bring everyone up to speed on what we're saying right now is there are a lot of possible connections between Sir Francis Bacon and Shakespeare's work and cryptology connecting Bacon to the money pit and the island – and Shakespeare being the swan, and Cygnus, and Nolan's cross, all of that stuff comes together. Again, though, coming back to what I was saying about the Bible code, which I actually never totally finished my thought on that, mm. is when you start looking for things, you tend to find the things you want to find. When you go looking for the number 23, you'll find it. Exactly. And I, I you know, and I'm, I'm not saying that Petter is doing that necessarily. He himself is sensitive to that. He, sa- he, he often remarks to himself, I didn't believe this. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to believe that. But then you can also see him getting excited when he stumbles across something that when you have to look at it, you're like, is this real or is it tenuous? Is some of it real and some of it tenuous? And that was the way I felt when I was reading the Bible code. And, you know, there's now a computer program, I believe. Yeah, my dad has it. Yeah. (laughs) uh, It's like the Bible. You can search for your name in there. Because the theory is the Bible code suggests that the Bible, the Torah, excuse me, is – is just like Google. You could just type in, you know, <laughs> well, not am I going to crash my car? <laughs> no. It, but you're, you're, <laughs> and by yeah. the way, this, you're this oversimplifying predestined, you know, this eliminates fate and it's basically saying that everything is written. Well, already. this is, this is what I believe is that, that not totally accurate, I think is what you're yeah. saying, and that it's an oversimplification. But what there is, is that there is some kind of inherent pattern and there's an algorithm. And it was studied by the University of Israel, I believe, that, uh, they noticed that there is some – it does come up as some kind of recognizable pattern is, is all you can say. The problem with it is that you just can't – it's not a magic eight ball. You don't say like, hey, am I going to crash my car tomorrow? And it's like, yes. Out, at, at Outlook 10, not so good. <laughs> <laughs> yes. At, at 10.30 a.m., you're going to have a bad accident. You, you, the question is – it's all in hindsight. Like you can look up New York Twin Towers and the answer will be it caused them to fall. Okay, now what what does that mean, really? Right. Other than that the meaning is derived from the reference of something that already happened. So it's not exactly a crystal ball. But what's weird is that you'll get answers like that, and it doesn't always match up. You can punch your name in there, and it'll come up a certain amount of times. What I notice is it is like the hidden word puzzle where it's more meaningful if the things touch or join. Right. The, the different the words, yeah. It, so right it all depends and diagonally. Yes. And it all depends on what question you ask, you put right. out there. I'm just and saying what kind of answer and you, how you interpret the answer. My you know. jury is still out on the Bible code yeah. as it's a little bit out on Petter's theory, but also there's some things in Petter's work that you just – that are kind of mind-blowing. This brings me to a point. I actually wanted to mention an email that we got from a listener who has some experience studying Shakespeare at Oxford. 
she's someone that we've corresponded with frequently and may be helping us out with research in the future. So she was, we, were, we were sending her links related to Petter's theory, and she wrote back this email, which I wanted to read just excerpts from this to you guys. And this is coming in from Tess Feifel. I just finished most of the documentary that you sent me, and as someone who is a strong believer in Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, I've tried to avoid as much confirmation bias as possible. In my time studying in Oxford, I took two tutorials on Shakespeare, one on perceiving Shakespeare, and one focused on the adaptations of seven of his plays. There are some things that weren't mentioned in this documentary that might bring some interesting things to light. First and foremost, the documentary kept calling Bacon a famed writer, and an author so great he was only second to Shakespeare. What they forgot to mention was the huge distinction between verse writing, what all 150-plus sonnets are written in, as well as the majority of all the plays, and prose writing, anything from novels to academic research papers, etc. Prose writing does not translate well into verse writing. The two are in no way related. What's more is Francis Bacon did publish verse, which brings to light two things. One, he wasn't a concealed poet because he did publish several poems. Two, his verse was not good. It just wasn't. Maybe it was passable, but it was not on par with Shakespeare's in the least, unless he was writing badly on purpose as a cover-up, but that's all just conjecture. In addition, the documentary left out that the publishers of the first folio were probably also extremely close to Shakespeare. The folio was published seven years after Shakespeare's death, the same time when Bacon's Code was revealed, at great expense and the sense of time and money of these two men. It seems like a lot of work for a fake. Something I also didn't understand about the documentary was if the Rosicrucians were a secret Masonic Brotherhood whose task was enlightening the people and spreading knowledge, why hide manuscripts in the Knights Templar treasure underground? Why not spread that knowledge? However, what Petter found was quite compelling, the astrological signs, the mapping out of the Rosicrucian symbol, and finding the stones where he was supposed to find something are all very impressive. The changes and clues in the first folio were also compelling. Additionally, the fact that much of the research was so heavily predicated on The Tempest is interesting. Though not in the formal three problem plays, The Tempest often is categorized as a problem play because it ends in a wedding, which seems to make it a comedy. The serious undertones throughout the work annihilate the comedic tone, however. The play is really about the complexities of human nature and about reminding the audience that the division between happiness and tragedy is always fragile and must be carefully maintained. And this idea is intertwined with knowledge, in this case, magic knowledge. Prospero rids himself of the magic by throwing the book and staff into the sea, as mentioned in your opening quote for tonight's show. This leads me to believe that perhaps whatever is down there is a source of intense knowledge that would tip the scales of human nature into chaos. So that's that, that's Tess's take on the documentary, which, of course, you you guys haven't seen yet. But if you go to the links and you, you have want to take four hours of your life and watch something pretty amazing on Vimeo, definitely check it out. And then you can come back and listen to that segment. We'll be publishing the portion of our email that I just read on our website, too, if you want to take a look at it after you've watched it. This is the thing about the Bacon Shakespeare thing. And where it relates to our story in the mystery of Oak Island is that Francis Bacon, whether he wrote them or not, was interested in the idea of Nova Scotia, was friends with William Alexander, the founder of Nova Scotia, who was a Mason and had Rosicrucian. And, and this, there's a differentiation between Rosicrucianism and Freemasonry, although very slight because they share a lot of the same ideas. There's a lot of crossover. And during this time of the uh, Enlightenment, everybody was showing interest in all of these same ideals. Let's get out of the muck and the filth and the murdering and the uh, and the burning at the stake and the beheadings. Let's get back to a higher ideal 
of enlightenment. Yeah, let's move forward to let's, slavery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's gonna, you know, that's gonna come up later. We'll uh, we'll eventually get around to that. But to answer one of uh, Tessa's points, as far as like why keep it secret, is that in one sense it's open, and in one sense it's it's not open. Everybody, Scott had a question earlier. We were talking about Freemasonry, and anyone can join. In most of the lodges, you just have to have a belief in a supreme being. You could be of any religion. You could be Muslim, you could be Jewish, you could be Christian, you could be Hindu. Because that was the overriding principle is that there is one unifying universal power, creator, grand architect of the universe, grand geometrician, designing everything. Do you think when two Masons meet from warring countries on the battleground that they give deference to each other? If they, uh, if, make, if they make it known that if they're both you, Masons. In a, in a special circumstance, you might help one another out. You might help out one another. Many military leaders throughout history, and, and especially around the time of the Revolution, the American Revolution, were Masons. George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, uh, a lot of the British, because it, it came from uh, Europe and it spread quickly in the Americas, a lot of them came out of the Masonic traditions as well as Rosicrucianism. By the way, another point that Petter made, getting back to his theory, was that Shakespeare, and the, against in the column against Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, was that Shakespeare would not have been capable, or that he was illiterate and that he was poor. Um, again, according to Tess, who had studied him at Oxford, she said that Shakespeare's father was one of the richest men in Stratford-upon-Avon, and literate or not, he was still a very smart and very savvy man. So it, it, additionally, he was a member of the acting guild, the Lord Chamberlain's men, to be specific, Actors had to be very literate and educated in order to memorize their lines. So it's hard to imagine that Shakespeare couldn't read or, or write. He, he probably was capable of doing these things. These are all, yes, again, these are all nebulous facts because, I, you know, you always hear the opposite that, you know, he grew up in poverty. He was, you know, a butcher's apprentice for a while. I don't think he was a dumb guy. You know, but then it was like, yeah, he didn't do very well as an actor. No, he did actually very well as an actor. So you, there's a lot of contention as far as like who whose facts are you going to go with? Right. Even on the higher academic levels, and I, I'd made this point to Scott before that I'd actually had a conversation with an archaeologist who was, a, I think, a PhD candidate, saying that they then had to decide which camp they were going to go into. And it's like, what are you, what are you talking about? It's like, well. Not even on the highest levels of, you know, people who are quoted as scientists and who write these textbooks, they don't all agree right. on, on who did what. And these are the people who have spent their lives studying this from highly respectable institutions, and even they can't agree. And it's like, oh, she, you know, once you pick which side you're going to go to, then you're shunned by the other side who doesn't agree with you. It's like this one fact I've always heard about Shakespeare, and I don't know what side academia lands on. It's an interesting factoid, I guess, that they have never found anything outside of the plays written by Shakespeare, not even a letter to his wife, any books that he may have owned, nothing. And I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I wonder what, if, if uh, Tess had found anything like that. I was actually going to write her back. But it's like, you know, again, doesn't rule it out for me. Like, all these things don't – I don't care who your father was, how rich you were, how educated you were, because I believe amazing things have been accomplished by people with no formal education, sure. as history has proved out. But the point is, is that I'm not sure if that's true or not. I, but again, it doesn't rule it out. It's just really odd. It's very odd. It's very odd that Petter had found – misspellings, and I guess that's been known, but in, in the printing, there's some odd things that are misspelled, some weird capitalizations that, that shouldn't really be there. I believe his name's misspelled. Even Francis Bacon's name is misspelled in some areas. Yes. 
So again, makes me think. And there's a lot of connection with numbers and yes. mathematics, and, as you know, and in cryptography, the sa- sacred numbers. In yes. fact, yes, because the number fifty-three was a particularly important. I can't remember why, but well, the, the lines, the, the lines, when averaged up, all equaled fifty-three on average, which was the date of his death. And Bacon outlived him about, by about ten years. Okay. So, anyway, getting back to Petter's theory, another interesting thing that he found. Is it's you ever heard of the tree of life? It's kind of generally known as that. I actually had not heard of that until you told me you came across this in the research uh, beyond, you know, allegorically and other stories, not this specific tree of life. Right. I had not heard of. No. Well, there's 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 two trees, essentially, but it is it's a little it's a little murky and complicated, but it comes from the Jewish mystical teachings of the Kabbalah. You've heard of that, of course. Yeah, well, Madonna does that. <laughs> I think I think it's a little beyond just wearing a red string around your wrist and and going, uh, you know, and then paying some dues here and there. What it is, though, is the sephirot, and it's a little hard to explain. It's a metaphysical idea here, but what it is, it's from the ancient Hebrew Kabbalah teachings. There are 10 spots, and like I said, it's, it's a geometric pattern with interconnecting lines. You, 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 when you see the picture, you'll, you'll get it, but it's, again, sacred geometry Yes, used by the Knights Templar and beyond and the Masons, everyone. Big symbology here. But in each of these dots, each of these circles that are at the intersections of these connecting lines have an attribute attributed to the infinite. So like I said, yes. So basically, yes, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, these are all the attributes uh, by which the infinite creates the universe physically and metaphysically. So you take this geometric pattern with the circles on it. You overlay that on an original printing of the folio because keep in mind, if you, you could get a book on Shakespeare now – from Amazon, and it's not originally laid out. Yeah, the words aren't in the, the same yeah, places. They're not yeah. in the same place. It's like, using a, yeah. it's like using a spy skip code. you got to get the same copy of the book right. for the two parties to, for it to make sense. You overlay that, though, and where the mercy spot is on the Sephirot, the word mercy appears on the page of the folio. It capitalized, which is strange because at that, at that spot, I don't believe it should be capitalized. Now, then what you do is you take this diagram of the Sephirot, and you overlay that on Fred Nolan's boulder cross on Oak Island, and where the spot is where it's mercy, and now it's come to be called the mercy spot on the show, in the History Channel show, it's at the apex of the swamp. Which is itself a delta. <laughs> a delta. Or a triangle. So who knows? Again, it, it's very compelling. Like I said, it, if... Even if none of this is is true, and I, I applaud all the time that he spent, it's really fascinating, and it's very interesting. Because, again, I believe in some, some kind of synchronicity where separate disparate elements come together to form a new meaning out of what seemingly is possibly unconnected items or events. And it could have meaning. All right. So we pretty much covered the idea that Sir Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare's works and he had to hide them away for a future time to when it would be safe to reveal that he was the author and the genius behind all that, as well as possibly some other sacred knowledge that he might have had access to via the Rosicrucians, which maybe we should come back and talk a little bit more about the Rosicrucians. Yeah, it's very interesting. So, uh, yeah, to get back to the idea is that it's not just a bunch of soggy plays written on parchment now that are faded. It's a collection of new ideas and ancient teachings and maybe even some ancient secret knowledge about alchemy, or it could be even, this is the theme all along, even with uh, uh, Enoch, is that secret knowledge about the universe was hidden away underground 
where it would be safe the, for future generations. Right, to protect it from floods and fire and catastrophic events. Exactly. And, and the parallels between the pit and even some of the Scottish Rite initiations and the, and the York Rite initiations in the Masons are – I mean, we've mentioned it a little bit before, but the number of chambers, where the stone was at 90 feet, the pedestal, the, you know, the – the deltas and the on the island, the triangles, God's true name. It's there's so many parallels. There comes a point at which when you're looking at all these web pages and doing all this research, you start to you start to become almost overwhelmed by the potential scale of this project. Because it it feels like the more you dig on it, the more connected it is to everything. Everything is connected and in, in also a very general sense as well. I believe all knowledge is somehow connected, even though you may not see the connections and it may not make any sense to you at the time, you can find some connections. And we'll get to a couple of those that I made myself just looking over some research here. Let's go back and explain who Christian Rosencruz was. He's kind of an allegorical figure, meaning they're not sure if he actually really existed or he may just be another teaching lesson. But Christian Rosenkreutz is the legendary possible founder of the Rosicrucian Order. Now, his last name is basically Rosie Cross. Cross. Yeah, yes. so that's the Order of the Rosie Cross. That sounds like a happy place. <laughs> it's a, Well, it wasn't too bad. It, th- these are all, again, these are nothing like sinister, dark, secretive, going to take over the world like, you know, people think the Masons are going to do. That's often been attributed to them as far as having plans of world domination and like all these leaders, they're all planning, you know, the the new world order and all that. It's really about enlightenment. And if, if there's anything secret about it, it's, as it's been said, to keep it from the eyes of the profane. And if you want to know what that means, go on to any YouTube clip and see the nasty comments people have written about it below who have nothing positive to say and nothing to add. They just want to get out their frustration and anger with very little understanding and that's probably who it's not meant for, although they could probably use it. But the idea is that anybody who wants to be serious, a serious student, and commit themselves to gaining this knowledge is welcome to receive it. And that's true of the Rosicrucians. I, I think there's a uh, Rosicrucian Society chapter down here in Southern California, mm-hmm. where it's out in um, a little west of here on the 10 Freeway. And uh, they're open to to taking anybody in that's that serious uh, that, and that wants to join. The same thing for the Baconian Society. Uh, if you're interested, you can uh, you can apply and join. And the same thing for the Masons. Again, I think the only one stipulation is that you have to have a belief in a supreme being. But other than that, you can be of any religion. And uh, if you're a decent sort of fellow, and, and for women, uh, I believe women can join. They also have their own uh, women's association, which is I think is still called the Eastern Star uh, I think my grandmother was uh, was a part of that. Oh, cool. Yeah, so it's it's look, it's it's inclusive, but it's not for the rabble that's just going to, you know, take the information and not do good things with it. Right. Yeah, okay. but anyway, so there are a couple of interesting things, though, about uh, Rosicrucianism. It's very closely tied with alchemy, as is, to a certain degree, Freemasonry. Alchemy, and, and it's the very basic definition of alchemy is... It's the joke is turning lead into gold, right? Again, that's a good point because yeah. that's the simplest, easiest thing that people can wrap their heads around without having to get too deep on it and, and make their heads explode. It's like, well, it's just turning lead into gold because people can understand that. It's like a Spanish ship was blown off course. It's Spanish gold on the island because all these higher ideals, 
and uh, spiritual principles are really hard for people to get a foothold on. So they just they want to go to the simplest thing, and the simplest thing they can think about with alchemy is is that transmuting metals, base metals, into precious metals. But it's really the idea of that though is it's allegorical. It's uh, yes, they the end result if you do these steps which transmute different metals, each step is supposed to teach you something. And when you get to the end, you have something called the Philosopher's Stone. And if you've read, if you've seen any Harry Potter or read any, she borrows a little bit of that as the Sorcerer's Stone. But what she's really talking about is the Philosopher's Stone. And the process of searching for it is called the Great Work. It's metaphorical, it's allegorical, meaning, yes, you do these steps, but you are supposed to learn things about the universe and human nature and life and all of these great things and use them in, in daily life to better humanity. But people pick out things that they uh, are, think are sensational or they get are afraid of and run a rail against uh, or just don't understand. And, and that's, of course, what, what gets out into the mainstream um, psyche. And J.K. Rowling also mentions another character, Nicholas Flamel, who was a real dude. That's a whole other show who supposedly received a book from an old rabbi and I think, I can't remember the century, probably early 17th century, suddenly got fabulously wealthy, disappeared, and they think people have seen him again, like 100 years later, and actually donate a lot of his money to charitable causes, again, tying in with these philosophies. Now, Christian Rosenkreutz is also thought of as another character, the Count of St. Germain. Have you, you've heard about him, haven't you? It was my obsession with the Count of St. Germain that led to all of the discussions that Forrest and I, in turn, turned into this program. And he was thought to be immortal. His, the history around him is legendary. In fact, he was a contemporary of Voltaire, and Voltaire said about him, quote, a man who knows everything and who never dies. So, I mean, come on. How much cooler can you get? If Voltaire's saying that about you, you got to be a pretty cool dude. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you got his attention. That's the thing. He was seen hundreds of years apart. By different people. And I think in one case, a noblewoman who had seen him at a young age, probably in her teens, saw him again when she was like in her 60s. And he looked the same and it freaked her out. Yes. But, but she's on record of, it's like, oh, my gosh, you know, you, uh, you've appeared again. Yes. And supposedly he spoke several languages. He could play any instrument. He was well educated. All the things that you would do if you were a smart guy to start with and then you got a chance to be immortal. Right. And just study and do whatever you want, like Christopher Lambert and uh, Highlander, right? <laughs> or, or Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. Exactly. You could take a, a you know, and, and somebody came out and said that, like, how many how many years he was supposed to have been at it, that? It was supposed to be hundreds, I believe. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah it just, yeah. that just sounds like misery. But, <laughs> but yeah. he learned to play the piano. Yes. Uh, no, but so the point is that here's another legendary figure. This one, he's got a lot more documentation because he came later on the scene in the uh, mid 18th century and actually had an apartment at the castle of Chambord or something. But he's basically, people have seen him and he was an associate of Ben Franklin. Yes. Right. So anyway, great. Another great figure. But he's attributed to possibly being actually Christian Rosenkreuz. The father of Rosicrucianism right. is, is possibly this man who was thought to also have been immortal. Yes. And also possibly thought to have been Sir Francis Bacon. So, what, yeah, the point we're here making with naming all these names is that they're all connected. They all kind of knew each other or had heard about each other or were inspired by one another's teachings. Or they were the same guy. <laughs> it's, just the, it's just one <laughs> dude throughout a history doing all these amazing things. But real or not, uh, the basic legend of Christian Rosenkreuz was that he was a doctor who traveled eastward to the, to the Middle East 
and learn esoteric wisdom taught by Turkish, Arab, and Persian sages uh, of, the, of the sects, the, uh, the Sufis, which is a uh, mystical branch of Islam, and the Zoroastrians, which are an ancient Persian religion, or kind of a sect. And he learned alchemy and mystical esoteric wisdom and knowledge and came back and founded the Fraternity of the Rose Cross, with himself as kind of the, the head of the order. And one little interesting tidbit, which I make a connection to the money pit here, trying to round it all back, is that uh, it is described that his body was discovered by a brother of the order in a state of perfect preservation 120 years after his death, which, of course, was all secret. And his life and his death and his journeys are, again, could be allegorical. They could just be teachings. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's a story to teach others about how to attain this knowledge rather than the guy being real himself. I tend to think he was probably real, whether he's the Count or not, or Sir Francis Bacon or not. How great is it to be so cool that after you die, people think you might not have even existed? <laughs> You're just a legend <laughs> to teach others. Yeah, but, uh, but what was cool, okay, is that death is represented by being lowered into a chamber into the earth, and on Rosenkreutz's crypt, there's a description on there, which I guess is an alchemical motto. And uh, what it is, it's in Latin, is Vesita interiora, Terre rectificando in Venice occultum lapidum, and that translates into visit the interior of the earth by rectification, which means making it right, making it straight, straighten, straightening something out, restoring it. Thou shalt find the hidden stone. So, what does that sound like to you? That sounds like the money pit. It sure does. Rectify it, clear it out, you get down, and you will find. A hidden stone, which they did. So more likely, somebody had learned this legend, this allegory, and possibly, I'm not saying I don't know, okay, but possibly recreated the pit to represent this because it's a, it's a journey going down into the earth to find the truth. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. This was, the, this was kind of what I was reading about, and I know this was after the money pit, but it's just like we're seeing this symbolism and this, this merging of all these symbols and mystical thoughts and religion and it it's just coming, coming from back. all over the world from people who are true initiates of secret societies and what's happening is these patterns you can see why the masons keep getting involved in the excavation because on the surface they go and they tell us in the press or whatever press is available at the time like well yeah we're excavating this it might be a treasure or something the knowledge that they have internally especially if they're high level masons is giving them a lot more parallels with respect to the money pit itself and their own initiation rites. And so they're seeing those parallels that they actually can't talk about when they talk to other people. But it's a reason that they're even more interested in getting to the bottom of the money pit than, than everyone thinks they are because there's, they can see the tie-ins with knowledge that they're not even supposed to share. Yeah, that's a really interesting angle because, you know, as several authors on this mystery have pointed out, these guys must have seen these symbols and known that they were sacred in some respects and Masonic and just generally pointers, not done as pranks. However, you know, there was a story Gilbert Hedden had found some stones on the beach. This is back in the mid-30s, and one had some very old writing on it, but he kind of dismissed it. He thought it was a hoax, and and he didn't pay any attention to it. And then there's another story of, of a, a stone, I think you told it earlier, where there were strange markings on it, so they blew it up. Yeah. Thinking like something might be underneath it, might be underneath it, and now it's in pieces. Yes, evidence has been obliterated. The evidence to make it easy has been, I think, obliterated. But there's two things I wanted to mention quickly before I forget. Here, there are two very prominent Masonic symbols 
that we have not seen yet, I don't believe, altogether as a whole. And the one, of course, is the uh, square with the compass. Right. And in the center, uh, either the letter G or the all-seeing eye of God, which is no. just, just, just a picture of the eye. And I think... We have had the letter G, though. Which yes, stands we have. for the sacred geometry yeah. and also for God. Yes. D- uh, Dan Blankenship, uh, I think they were bulldozing, and that, that giant boulder got turned over, and he spotted it very quickly and then cleaned it off and, and determined it. It was, under, it was facing un, on the ground. It's a massive boulder. Yeah. But he was uh, quick enough to spot it. That's the, the one symbol you see most commonly. Again, it's, it's the inverted uh, square, so it looks like a V, and then there's a, a compass over the top of that that looks like an A. And in the middle, you would, you'll probably see a G or an I. It's a, and by the way, it's important to note that Petter Amundsen, in his documentary, when he talks about the original bust of Shakespeare by his uh, tombstone in the church that he's buried in, the original bust, which is no longer there, his arms make up – his arms <laughs> and the way he's sitting makes up the, the compass in the square. Oh, but that bust was replaced. Yeah. And the new one, he just – he has a pen in his hand and it's much more standard. So again, he's thinking that the information was removed because it was giving something away. Yeah. Some things throughout history may have been squirreled away. Mark Finnan makes a point that the 90-foot stone, A.O. Crichton, who, you know, took it to his book bindery in the mid-1800s and uh, it was there for a while to, as a promotional thing. But that kind of disappeared and it may not have been by accident. Some may have deemed that the time was not right to share this information or to have others kind of look this over. Well, I, and, I, and I said yeah. – I made this point before yeah. in one of the earlier parts of this series was that the – some people think that the text that was on it was also not shared and that, that they just made up a new code or they made something to, to give people yeah. – because this knowledge of the stone was out there. But the, what was on it, they wanted to keep to themselves. Right. So all these translations were doing – may be based on a substitute or a decoy text from the yeah. stone. Now, here's a little interesting tidbit. A couple of weeks ago, I was listening to some YouTube audio, and Jay Hutton Pulitzer, commander from his company Treasure Force, had a little uh, podcast where he was talking about the current state of the dig and, and what was going on. And I think I heard this correctly, but I think he said that the family that has the 90-foot stone, they are in negotiations, I think with him, to bring the stone back into the public view that they had it for a long time and it they think it's time to reveal this and there are negotiations to you might see it again I don't that know. would be That's that crazy. would be fascinating. And I'm yeah. I'm interested that he said that because it's my understanding that it had been used at the book bindery to bang like – to hammer out <laughs> leather on for so long you yeah. couldn't even read the inscription. Right. Anymore. I've heard that. And again, maybe that wasn't totally maybe unintentional. That's a false, yeah, maybe that's a red herring. Oh, and the second thing I was going to mention is a very common Masonic symbol and that is the two pillars of – Boaz and Yachin. <laughs> and you see, actually, if anyone's familiar with the, a tarot card deck, if you look at the high priestess, there's two columns there. One's white, one's black, and they have the letters B and J on them. It's, it's got to be pretty much every Masonic lodge will somewhere have the two pillars, which represent the two pillars that were at Solomon's temple. Again, this knowledge has been passed down for thousands of years. Right, and the columns are a mechanism for the Masons or for these organizations to store information for the long term, because originally those two columns, one was built to withstand fire, the other one was built to withstand water. They can put information inside the columns, and then there's a lot of places that there are columns that have Masonic symbolism on them that people are wondering what's inside, including Roslyn Chapel, and because they have the one there called the uh, the Apprentices 
column, I believe. That's, like, that goes back to the building of Solomon's Temple. And the old, there's an old legend that the master was teaching the apprentice. The apprentice actually did better than the master. He got upset and killed the apprentice. Right. There's something about that. You can go dig that up. But yes. But the point is, like, these columns, which are all over the world, we know where they are. Maybe we should open them up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because it's the most basic piece of architecture. Do you think about all the cathedrals and coliseums of the Romans and, and the Greeks? And even the hermetic tradition, that's where we get hermetically sealed. You yes. heard that, that yes. term? That was probably being bound by some kind of, of uh, good magic to keep it preserved. But the pillar, that's where they think Hermes, he either, cre- he either wrote down his knowledge onto a pillar or he discovered one of the ancient pillars that had the, the, all the secrets of the world and the universe, the secrets of farming Inside the column. A building. Or, yeah. Either inside or inscribed on it. Yeah. That, but again, my, the my, pillar is important. My great-grandparents had a beautiful house in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. It was amazing. Had a wraparound porch with like 10 columns on it. And unfortunately, the house eventually had to be torn down after they passed away. And it fell into disrepair. Those columns had termites in them. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which ate all the secret knowledge. Yeah. The, yeah. Yes, they were very the smart termites. Yeah, they had a little Just gold outfit. A good feast. Yeah. Anyway. But, but the basic, the idea of them, and I got this from an old article, which again, we'll post by Thomas Troward. The pillars symbolize unity and the redeeming power of love. So these are good things. These are not black magic kind of, kind of hoodoo kind of things. It's meant to symbolize the retainment of knowledge. But my point is somewhere on the island, Possibly, if there's an entrance of any kind, you might see something representing these two pillars. Right. Uh, and they could be trees. Trees with strange markings were found, but then again, the, the trees were lost or cut down. You will see something that represents that. Maybe they're in stone, could be two trees, but they should be marked B and J. I don't know if you're ready to go here yet yeah. in terms of like the kind of getting, we're getting towards the end, folks. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for sticking with us. <laughs> yeah. For the three listeners yeah. that are still listening. Uh, I don't know if you're ready to go here yet, but there was a story in Darcy O'Connor's book about a man who was out in a rowboat, I believe, and he looked on the island and he saw a ghostly figure with a long white beard standing between two columns who told him to come over there and he would give him all the gold he could carry. Boy, that is <laughs> that is an old boy, do you take that up or not? Because No, that, he said know. he rode home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's gonna I can't be, remember who it was yeah. now. It's gonna be know, some like, dumb trick like it's all the gold you can carry, but you have to swallow it. Yeah. You know? And you can only spend it here for the rest of your eternity on the island. It's sure. some kind of there's always a catch. Oh, one thing quick thing I want to mention, speaking of stone, and I found another interesting connection. This goes back to our idea that if you look hard enough, all these kind of connections can be made, which seem disparate, but they can have end up having some meaning. So I was thinking of, of the Nicolas Poussin painting, The Shepherds of Arcadia. Now, Nicolas, Nicolas Poussin. This is a Poussin. famous painting in, these, in the circles of, of Rosicrucianism. Oh, yes. Temple. Yeah. Well, he was Nicolas Poussin, the, the American pronunciation here, uh, born 1594, died 1665, was a leading painter of his time in France of the classical Baroque style. And he painted a lot of Greek mythology, Roman mythology, allegorical scenes. Uh, that's what was very popular at the time. He was known to possibly encode a bunch of secret things into his paintings that you wouldn't nor- – and again, I didn't find anything like that on, on Wikipedia. But if people that study you know, what would be considered maybe pseudoscience or pseudoarchaeology have found little coded meanings into his paintings. Now there's – and you may have heard about this. This is a whole, probably a whole other show. At Shugborough Manor, there's an inscription on a, on a piece of stone in the, in the garden – and it's very mysterious. But what it is, it's the reverse image of Poussin's painting, The Shepherds of Arcadia. 
And the title of the painting in, in Latin is Et in Arcadia Ego, which means I am also in Arcadia. And there's several different variations of it. But basically, it's kind of an old phrase in Latin, meaning don't don't forget, you will also die. And kind of the, the very general mainstream interpretation is that it's even here in paradise, death is present. So whoop it up, have fun. But remember, at some point, you've got to die. A memento mori, I think, is, is the Latin term of that. So one thing I, I found that was kind of interesting, and it may, again, may be nothing at all. But in, in this depiction that is reversed, why? Who knows why it's totally reversed? Well, the shepherds, they're pointing, right? That's one The shepherds are covering up certain letters, and the letters are R and N. There's a string of letters underneath the carving that nobody has been able to figure out. And what they are is O-U-O-S-V-A-V-V. And on either side are the initials D and M. So there's some theories about it that is basically just a standard memorial. There's not, there's not much else to it. But the shepherds that have been carved in there are covering up the letters R and N. Now, who knows why? They, again, cryptologists have been trying to figure this out for years now. Nobody seems to come up with a satisfactory answer. Some think that, you know, it spells out devout Mason. Some folks think it's just a tribute to the owner's deceased wife. One thing I found that was interesting is the patriarch of the manor, William Anson, was also a contemporary of Francis Bacon. And above the, the main carving of the scene there, on the right side, is a head which looks like the god Pan. Now, the Greek god Pan was the, considered the god of the wild, of shepherds, flocks, mountains, rustic music, and the companion of the nymphs. So that's what leads to Arcadia in Greece. The ancient Greeks also considered Pan to be the god of theatrical criticism, which, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Yeah. I guess he's doing his stint, you know, thumbs up or down. Yeah, Siskel and Pan. Exactly. And so then you start going, uh, you, you take a look at the left side. That and might be the worst joke I've ever made in my life. Oh, it's, uh, no, that's still coming. Or you, okay. yeah, there's much worse, I'm so, sure. To date, yeah. let's just to date. go to date. Anyway. Now, on the other side of that, on uh, another head that's carved is a bald, smiling man. And then it's like, okay, nobody knows, seems to know who the bald, smiling man is. And then I started thinking like, wait, William Shakespeare, perhaps? And then you start making different connections. You start digging a little deeper. And then I found out the monument was built sometime between 1748 and 1763, commissioned by Thomas Anson, I think the son of uh, the contemporary of Francis Bacon, because this was, of course, uh, some years later. And it was executed by the Flemish sculptor Peter Schemachers. I think I'm saying that right, hopefully, who is perhaps best known for executing the William Kent design memorial to William Shakespeare which was erected in Poet's Corner in Westminster Abbey in 1740. So a few years earlier, he'd worked on a little Shakespeare stuff himself. Then he comes to do this piece. And you think like, okay, is there a connection there? Where are these shepherds pointing? Why is it reversed? Another interesting thing, there's another vault that's been carved in that's on top of the vault that's in the original painting. Poussin did the painting twice, so I think it's in the second version. What the heck is that there for? Is it possibly the two chests that were on top of each other in the money pit? And again, it's, 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 it, your just mind just goes, going. it just yeah. keeps going and crazy. And you know what? This probably means nothing. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the first to think of that. But this is the point I'm making is that all these kind of connections can be made. And a lot of them are valid. Some probably lead nowhere or just are unintentional and maybe have some meaning on their own. May not. 
Well, but like, they can't like be it made. goes all the way back to the Wilkins map, which we talked about in yeah. an earlier it, part it, of the exactly. show. Yeah. Not this episode, but the prior ones. I know it's hard to believe there were ones before this, but the map had information on it that corresponded to Oak Island, but it was admitted to be wholly fabricated by the man who drew it from out of nothing. Yeah. So it came to and he had some inspiration from some other pre existing maps, none of which were connected to Oak Island. So the details came together. So then the next thing that happens, and this is where debunkers would go crazy if any of them are listening to us now, the the difference between, okay, people are stretching this, this pseudoscience, you're making all these connections that aren't there, where's the hard evidence and where are the facts? There's another side to that, and <laughs> I, I recognize that this would irritate some people, but like maybe these things all appear to be connected in certain ways because they are connected in a way that we can't really – conceive that there's a fabric to it all right that pulls everything together and the reason the more you dig and the more you look the more things seem connected it's because they are okay and the last thing i will say as far as like connections you can make is a a work done by peter oberg on the deciphering the letters he thinks the letters could stand for numbers the sum of which would be 2810 which is the distance in miles from shugborough to the money pit so there you go. That's okay. another connection which may or may not be real. Okay. And now on to the paranormal aspects and the final, <laughs> the final nail in this pit coffin. We want to thank <laughs> uh, my mom, who is the only one still listening, probably. <laughs> my dad, probably in several chunks over yes. several months. Yeah. Three or four people that are still with us here. Okay. So one thing we mentioned, I think, in the very first show is that uh, there are some paranormal aspects about the island. First of all, the the lights, the glowing orbs, uh, possibly green, two or three, who knows, that drew the two fishermen back in 1710 to check out the island who never returned. And possibly Daniel McInnes and Chums saw these lights and wanted to go investigate them. So, yeah. Yes. And regarding those lights, I kid you not, I can point you to a link where there are people that say that the lights were electromagnetic discharge from a 10,000-year-old matter regenerator that was buried at the money pit by lizard people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, well, it's look, it's no more out that's there it. than that's probably... The that's yeah. the theory. That is exactly what happened. You know what? If you're going to go wide and go fringe, go big. Go big or go to another dimension. Well, there you go, which you, <laughs> which you are able to do with a, with a lizard. Well, speaking of scary stuff on the island, you know, we mentioned earlier that there's been a lot of paranormal activity. People have claimed to have seen ghosts, 18th century British soldiers to maybe even Knights Templar. But remember Dan Henske? Now, he's a he's a, a real salty-the-earth worker type that was helping Dan Blankenship put steel casing down into Borehole 10X. Yes, he lived on the property. He lived on a house right there at the mouth of uh, 10X, wasn't it? Or was it at the mouth of the It was close. I mean, yeah. He's close to the shore. I think yeah. they, they were able to build cabins and such. But he's been there a long time, and he's on the show currently. And uh, he had a kind of a horrible – he's had a, a several kind of horrible things that he's experienced. And one – we were I mean, it was, it's kind of funny in, in a sense, but I feel his – I feel the tremendous uh, terror that he must have felt to have done this. But he was so frightened by uh, some kind of spirit encounter, I believe. And I think described, it was at night. He descri- didn't he describe it as a Spanish priest? I don't know if these are connected or okay. if this was a separate incident. What Scott's talking about is uh, – and you'll see this on the show if you watch it. He claims that there was a moment – I think he was in one of the workshops, and he said he was possessed by the spirit of a medieval Spanish priest who was having his throat cut, and he felt his own constriction of his own airway happening. He fell to the ground and felt like he was possessed. 
Right. Now, and by the way, you guys might remember uh, Menzies, who we mentioned earlier in this episode about seven hours ago, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, who helped the Inca move their treasure from Tumbes up to – Inadvertently to Nova Scotia. Yeah. Well, that was a Spanish. <laughs> that was a medieval Spanish priest. So I'm just hey, saying. And he may yeah. have had his throat cut right. uh, because somebody didn't like the fact that he did that. Who yeah. knows? You'd think he would have mentioned having his throat cut to the automatic writer, though. Back when the automatic. Yeah. Writer. Well, no, you can't. You can't talk. Plus, yeah. if you've ever seen it, uh, watch the Changeling with George C. Scott. It's oh, a, there's yeah. a there's a scene of that, and it's it's kind of frightening and exciting. And so Dan Hensky claims that he had this episode. I'm not sure he learned really anything about it, but he does feel like he was possessed by this spirit, and it was very frightening. And I don't know if this is a separate incident, but one time he was so frightened by another spirit encounter that he stripped off all his clothes. And this will sound silly, but it's kind of – I can understand how scared he was. He stripped off all his clothes, swam to the mainland, which is, again, 650 feet. Mm -hmm. And that water's freezing. And at night – and I don't know what time of year it was – and only, and this is maybe the kind of the funny part, other than him being naked. He all he brought with him was a globe, a book on advanced calculus, a textbook, and a copy of Elvis and Me by Priscilla Presley. Now I don't know why, other than it's he must have been selection. in such a panic. <laughs> yes, where did why, why were those on the island in the first place? But I, in that panic, I don't know. Maybe the globe was for buoyancy. Again, he was probably so scared out of his wits. That you're not thinking clearly. You just want to get out of there. Well, Dan Blankenship said that Dan Hinsky has paid a, a very high price for yeah. all his time on the island, more, more than many other men who've worked oh, on it. it. Really? Yeah. That's, in, that's an interesting statement because, he, yeah, he said he's constantly had nightmares, just bad feelings. And they, they on the show, they bring in a paranormal team. They've taken some photographs and there's a lot of activity by the swamp area. There's a lot of heavy presence. The one husband who's uh, the one of the paranormal investigators, he's a very much a skeptic. He, even he said, I heard footsteps coming towards me out in the woods near the swamp area. So, And of course, people who have been associated with the dig and the proceedings from uh, Darcy O'Connor to Laverne Johnson have consulted psychics. And Mark Finnan actually knows Terry Murphy. She's one of the most well-respected psychics in Nova Scotia. And he had an incident where he was, they were filming a TV show with her and she had some observations and basically saw men in cross-emblazoned robes proceeding on the island as if they were doing something very important. And basically they were wearing the eight-pointed cross of the 12th century Order of the Knights Templar of Jerusalem. The same emblem has appeared on ceremonial clothing worn in Masonic ritual for centuries. And that's from his, that's from his book. But a lot of the psychics have keep coming back to the swamp area. The swamp is, is very interesting. I mean, based on all the things that we've come across and covered, it seems to be definitely a hot spot right now. It's a hot spot. There's something to it. It's not very accessible and it's hard to pump. So it's, it's not a very easy place to get at. All right. So for those that, of you that are still with us. <laughs> that's um, got to be it. This episode yeah. truly was for the people who have written in and said that they like to binge listen to our show because on this one, you can binge listen without even having to select a new episode. <laughs> it's all <laughs> one long gorge of words and names and dates. But I think for all, for good reason, because one of the goals that I had was to be not the final word on this, of course, certainly. Uh, we couldn't get everything in. But I wanted it to be definitive about something that I believe could be possibly very important to human beings everywhere. Yeah. I don't feel – for me, the fun, my final conclusions are that I really don't think this is just a stack of money. I just – I'm <laughs> yeah. sorry. I just don't believe that. One of the point that you made earlier in this episode that I thought was super valid is that when you hide money, you want to be able to get it back pretty quick. Yeah, and especially if it's ill-gotten gains, you want right. to get it out. 
things that you're hiding to not be recovered or to be very difficult to recover under even the best of circumstances, they aren't necessarily about cash value. And I think it's pretty clear that whatever is or was here was important to all of mankind. And I think it's, in a way, all the work and engineering that went into concealing it makes it a little more frightening to think about and what what it is or what it was. And if it was something that was moved, where is it now? Yeah, right. It will. Well, what if it was discovered by someone with evil intentions? And I mean, who knows? <laughs> we don't know. The, the Nazis in the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Belloc. Maybe it's, yeah, maybe it's just in a warehouse and, you know. That's, you know what? My thinking is that it could be something huge and it could have been moved already. But my general thinking is that this is a puzzle for people to study and learn as all the designs have pointed to so far. And when you are ready with the answers, the treasure will make itself known. But if you don't have the answers, you get a you get a bulldozer and a pod auger and you go at it. Because I think I think so many of the clues have been lost. That may be the only way to it. Well, yeah, and as many times as it's been pumped out, it's a lot of the things that were down there that they hadn't even gotten to yet could have been relocated into any one of the flood tunnels or drains or natural flood tunnels or where anywhere. It's things because we've been pumping so much water through there and blowing things up, blowing things up on the beach and pumping it backwards. Stuff has got to be all over the place at this yeah. point. I mean, really, if you're going to get to the bottom of it, you'd build a coffer dam like, I don't know, 2,000 feet around and turn that thing into the, the Astrodome. <laughs> <laughs> you got, you got to like turn off the water. Yeah, yeah. no, that's, the, that's the, one of the keys to it. But I hope that they at least find a bit here that underground in one of the caverns that just says, this is important. Yes. And, then, and that's what the idea was, I think, originally, is that the pit calls attention to the world that something is here and should be studied and figured out. And for the, the just initiate to enter into with, with a pure heart, or at least good intentions, not just Spanish gold, and attain the riches of knowledge. So that's a very highfalutin way to say, to go about, I hope they find something, at yes. least. I think it's time. And then the last thing I'll say is I did mention this to people possibly connected to the show. I, I kind of put it out there, that I think they should try using remote viewing. And that is a whole other topic that we'll do a show on, because it's an interesting process, I will say. But it w might allow you to save some time and figure out where exactly you should be looking. All right. Thanks for sticking with us. We'd like to remind you guys that you can get a free audiobook by visiting audible.com forward slash ALP, where you can download and be listening to a book by Sir Francis Bacon in minutes. Yes. Apologies, though, for the slight delay on this posting due to the loss of our studio computer. Proving the curse of Oak Island is far reaching and potentially fatal for electronics. <laughs> And a quick reminder that we're taking a one-week hiatus, but we'll be back with a new show on August 28th. Our theme was composed by Judson Crane and our sound design by Ryan McCullough. Thanks to Jim Creative Design for our logo. Most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Google+. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 